On behalf of all the people who have assembled here, I would merely like to mention, if I may, that our unanimous attitude is one of lasting gratitude for what our friend has done for us today. And therefore, I would simply like to say... Thank you very much. Thank you very much. That's the nicest thing that anyone's ever done for me. I'm ancient double Dutch, but my delight is such. I feel as if a losing war's been won for me. And if I had a flag, I'd hang me flag out. Welcome to the Digital Holiday Podcast. Thank you, darling. Hero. Yes. That was that's that's like the most perfect intro I think we've ever had. Very very proud of my daughter. Outstanding. And uh, the uh, the intro music, of course, is from Scrooge, the uh, musical Anthony Newley, uh, Albert Finney musical Christmas of uh, Christmas Carol, which I've always been very fond of, and uh, I don't like it when people rip on it, but it's a, it's a fun movie. Darn it, Albert Finney is Scrooge, singing songs. Uh, hard to believe that Anthony Newley was once the highest paid actor in the world. Was he really? Yes. Anthony Newley? He had a moment. He had a moment. Anthony wow. Anthony Newley had, had a moment as being the highest paid Wow, that's kind of crazy. It was only a moment, but you know. I'll, My I'll, goodness. I'll, I'll take that one moment. Yeah, well, uh, we have a surprise here. We have a special guest. Uh, special guest, go ahead and say hi. I feel like I'm on What's, what's Your... What, 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 what was that show? What's Your Line? What's my line? Yeah. Uh, this is Mark. Yeah. I'm back. I am back because it is Lafka voting time, and Tim and Wade and myself are doing nothing but watching movies day and night, night and day. Yeah. Very true. We're watching a lot of movies. And are, are we loving a lot? Um, loving a lot. I'm going to share my microphone with, uh, with Mark. Wait, so uh, okay. we're kind of loving a lot? No, yes. for, uh, no, liking a lot, but not loving. Loving a few. Yeah. Um, uh, boy, girl, dream. Love that. Uh, we were just talking about this. Which, moment, yeah, which, 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 which I, I talked about on the radio, too. Um, and uh, three or four others. I, on, on, in terms of the big, big, big movies, uh, I suppose A Star is Born. The favorite, uh, you know, the, the favorite. favorite, yeah, and then, and then we move off into some, you know, uh, and and Roma is getting an enormous amount of love, which I still haven't seen, um, and then kind of there's another tier where you start getting things like the Melissa McCarthy film, uh, yeah, Black Black Klansman. Um, Black Klansman is right there on, uh, on one of the tops for me. It's 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 right near the top for a lot of people. It doesn't seem to be near the top for enough people. It strikes me that there are three films that are really in the running, which is Star is Born, Roma, and The Favorite. Those are the three that seem to be getting the most attention. But maybe I'm wrong. But you know, the, I've been surprised before. Look, we gave the we gave Best Picture to Wally one year for crying out loud. Then that came out of the blue. I think what we really I think what we really did is we gave Best Pictures the first twenty minutes of Wally, because those, if you remember, were so beguiling and so Chaplin esque. That even as the film became a little more typical of the yeah. Pixar in-house style, we were still so swayed by those magical first uh, 20 minutes. But uh, yeah, actually, animation-wise, it has not been a good year. Although I loved uh, the Wes Anderson stop-motion thing. 
Uh, yeah, the uh, Isle of Dogs, which a lot of people love, but a lot of people don't. And, and there are some, you know, ethnic and racial issues that uh, come up with that, which I think is worth discussing. I don't no, it's think not. They, no, it's I don't not. think they hurt the film. No, it's not. Uh, it's not worth discussing. Wait, let me tell you something. Yeah. Here's the thing. I I got the whole thing where it's uh, it's it's you know it's, it's, uh, what, what what do they call it uh, appropriation. Uh, forget yeah. it. Take that out of the take that word out of the dictionary. Yeah. If, you I, know what? If you want to wear a yarmulke and you're like some African American rapper, go wear a yarmulke. I don't care. I, go I, nuts. That, that's not my. I, I don't have any issues with it. I know some people do, but I look. I think Wes Anderson has every right to make a, a movie about Japanese culture, just as Chloe Zhao has every right to make the writer. You know, uh, so it, it ultimately it's the movie that has to stand on its own. Uh, also, we should de- uh, I should make mention of the fact we didn't have a podcast last week for all of the obvious. Whose phone's ringing? It's not mine. That's mine. Don't stop the recording, Wade. Oh well, there we go. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Mark's laughing. Wait, wait. He, know- he knows who's calling me. Uh, so. Yeah, you know, uh, we didn't have a podcast last week because, and that's partly what that phone call was about. Because uh, half of my city, uh, more than half my city, uh, practically burned to the ground, as I'm sure everybody uh, notices. So it is a very somber and sober Thanksgiving week uh, here where I'm at. Uh, I, of course, have experienced many fires here in this community and in Southern California and uh, 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 up close at close range. Uh, 25 years ago was the one that that really, really uh, set everybody's teeth on edge over in my part of the city. But this one... Uh, this one was pretty ferocious, pretty vicious, and, uh, you know, the Zuma Beach area is like a war zone, and it's very, very sad. And I've got about a dozen friends who lost their homes, and uh, about four of my daughter's classmates, at least, also lost their homes. Mm. And so um, the school district is being great, local faith communities are being great, the city is being great. Uh, so far, all of our local political uh, representatives have really been been doing good good work. So. It's tough here. It's a it's a tough Thanksgiving week, but we're uh, you know what we're here and we're ready to do a do a fun podcast. We got a lot of great stuff to include in this show. We've got interviews. Uh, we've got uh, we got Mark here. It, we have my daughter doing our little intro. Uh, we're gonna make we're gonna we're gonna have a lot of fun. So Mark, you had a story as well recently. Well, here's the thing. Something more interesting happened. After you and I just happened to bump into each other at the saucer house, that saucer house thing is cool. Um, <laughs> so part of the fun, which I noticed that Wade and Tim don't take much advantage of, but I do because I love free food. It, during this time of year, is you get invited to a lot of parties. Yeah. And the other night was the A twenty four party. Now A twenty four is the upstart distributor that uh, they distributed Moonlight, which won Best they Picture. A, they have a deal with Apple now. They have a deal with Apple now, which is very strange. But um, it's good for them. It's good for A24. It's good for Apple. I, yeah. I'm afraid that Apple's going to drop the ball on the whole original. Like they're sort of late to the party. And I don't know that they're going to throw as much money at it as Netflix has or give, or give those favorable terms. Well, they here's a trillion dollars. Yeah. But how do they want to spend that trillion dollars? See, here's the thing. I, and, and, and not to go too far afield, I'll let you get into the A24 stuff. But here's, here's my feeling on Apple really quickly, not to take up too much time because we only have so much time. But uh, the Apple is a computer company, and I think they understand that. And I don't think Apple wants to have a subsidiary known as Apple Studios. I don't think Apple wants any subsidiaries. Apple has done well in, in the music field by leveraging technology in a way that benefits creators, so the creators are using them as a platform. But they aren't creating the music. Other people are creating the music. 
I think Apple wants to be in the movie business in the same way and in the television business. They want to still be a technology company and they want to be a platform that people want to go to. I don't think they want to be in the production business to any significant degree. So I think that's what they're looking for are partners who are already in the business, who aren't going to be, you know, they're, they're not going to be looking to Apple for all of their cash, but they're going to be looking to Apple to be a partner. And Apple wants to be the platform company more than the production company, if that makes sense. That's what I think Apple wants to do. Well, whatever they do, there's now the bar is very high. So the bar is very high. So if, if their sites are not as high, right, they don't want to be like a Netflix production company type thing, cranking out. Whatever they do had better be really, really good. Because otherwise, people are going to say it's not as good and they're not doing as much. I think they're looking at uh, Netflix and they look at Netflix's debt. And I think they look at Hulu and Hulu's debt. And I think they look at Amazon and they see how little return Amazon has gotten for what they've spent. And I think they realize we don't really want to do what they're doing. That's what I think. Which is fine. I mean, Netflix yeah. obviously is the gold standard right now. Uh, but anyway, so I'm at this A24 party. And, and here's the thing. You have to understand. And people, people, long-time listeners understand this. I'm an idiot. They understand that. And they're okay with it. You know? And so I was literally, I thought, okay, the A24 party. A24, they, haven't, they didn't release a lot of big films this year. It wasn't on their slate. But... They did release the directing debut of, uh, of, uh, of Jonah Hill, now uh, called Mid-90s. Now, I know Jonah. I, Jonah and I developed a show together like 14 years ago. Mm -hmm. It was me and Jonah hanging out at Henry Winkler's house for like two, three times a week for three months developing the show. So I know Jonah. And I've seen him subsequently at screenings and said hello and whatever, but I haven't seen him in maybe five or six years. So I have a feeling he's going to be there. So I go, you know what? A, I like free food. And because I'm unemployed, I like free drinks, which are normally very expensive. And I like free food. I also like free drinks. Have I mentioned that? And I like free food. But I'm thinking maybe Jonah will be there. So I am talking to people. I'm mingling. I said to somebody, every time I talk to a celebrity, I always say the stupidest thing. I'm very bad talking to celebrities in social situations because I always wanted to say something stupid. Now, mind you, I, I was a talk show segment producer for years. My job was to talk to celebrities, and it was fine. Yeah. But when it comes to social situations, talking to celebrities, I'm basically, I'm an idiot who's going to say something stupid. So I'm waiting for Jonah to get there, and I'm tired of waiting for Jonah to get there, so I leave. And as I walk out the door and exit into the light or the dark of, of the Sunset Strip, uh, Jonah shows up. So now I think, okay, I got to go back because I want to say something to Jonah. Because I haven't seen him in five years. He's part yeah. of the reason I went. So Jonah's not hiding. He's not brooding in a corner with a celebrity buddies in a booth. He's, he's, you know, talking to people. But I don't know what to say. And he's got a bunch of people around him. But he's being very nice to everybody, it looks like. But I'm trying to find my moment and hopefully not say something stupid, which, of course, is inevitable. So I'm sitting in this chair, sitting on that couch, walking, stalking, trying to find my moment. Finally, I see the moment, and I think to myself, before I tap him on the shoulder, I think to myself, he probably remembers me, but may not remember my name. So I'm going to reintroduce myself. So I tap him on the shoulder. Always a smart play, by the way. Always a smart play. If you can slip that in tactfully, yeah. it doesn't seem embarrassing to me, yeah. to the person, right? So I tap him on the shoulder. He turns around. He says, hey, gives me a hug. And I, of course, I say, you know, Mark Heiser. He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, of course. He, 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 big smile, gives me a hug. 
And so I say to him, um, I loved uh, uh, mid-90s. Never saw it. I loved mid-90s. Never saw it. And I thought to myself, I was saying to myself, when I was watching this, and Jonah, while I was watching this film, which I never saw, while I was watching this film, I thought, God, this is so distinctive looking. Got a great look. Never saw the film. It's got a great look. You know, who were you influenced by? You know, when you, you work with these great directors and when you're deciding on the palettes and the... And for some reason, he took that question so wrong, either, and I don't know why, either, either, it, took the, either it took the joy and partiness out of the evening by asking this very, you know, august film critic question. Uh, I don't know if that was the reason or because he didn't like the question or, be, or whatever it was. You could see the joy of the evening drained from his face with this question. And so I start fumbling around to try to ask it in a different way that he doesn't have to answer, but just don't look at me like I'm an idiot. And I was unable to find this, this pathway to success, to conversational success. And then eventually he just sort of said, it's my life story, man. As if like, uh, look, uh, I don't give a crap what you're saying. It's my life story. Go to hell. So then at the end, I said, oh, are you going to be directing anything else? Or however I said that. He goes, yeah, I got something next year. It was really great to see you. Goodbye. Yeah. So essentially, he just had enough of me and how I was ruining his evening. What was wrong with your question? I have no idea. I don't know whether. I get, my, my only guess is maybe he didn't want to admit that he was influenced by somebody. Even though he's a 34-year-old man, he's obviously influenced by somebody. Or it was such a fun evening with his friends and family and success that here's Mark asking the serious movie question. And all he wanted to do was get wasted. Yeah, and I'm bringing, I'm harshing his buzz. I don't know. Whatever it is, I literally saw the the the, the energy, the joy drain from his face as he realized <laughs> that this is what he's being asked <laughs> in this party atmosphere. And I literally, I left and I just slapped myself on the face. I thought, what the f is your goddamn problem? Literally, that was. I haven't seen this guy in five years. We worked together. We know each other. Gave me a big hug, and and I, I literally just ruined the whole thing. The only thing I can, the only thing that made me feel better is the fact that he probably forgot the conversation the moment it ended. So, so what you're saying is that Jonah Hill, someone that you know, you were, you were less slick with him than I was with Benedict Tashin. <laughs> okay. He, he, now, he, here's the thing. Now, Wade, Wade is a smart man. I'm the opposite of a smart man. Uh -huh. Tim, smart man. I'm the opposite of a smart man. And Wade says to me, he's gonna, he, he has something he wants to say to Benedict Tashin, yeah. who is the publisher of the Tashin. The very and, and, and you will find out later. Okay, so we're, we, we have a couple of interviews on the show this week, uh, one of which uh, I was late to because I was at this, uh, this event at uh, Benedict Tashin's Saucer House, very famous architectural saucer <laughs> house in the Hollywood Hills. There was an event for uh, the Van Gogh film. Yes, at Eternity's Gate. At Eternity's Gate, which stars Willem Dafoe as as uh, Van Gogh and was uh, co-written and directed by uh, uh, Julian, Julian Schnabel. Uh, First time an, an artist has made a movie about an artist. Anyway, so Schnabel was there and Willem Dafoe was there and, you know, the, the whole deal. Pacino. Pacino was there and uh, and, and Guillermo del Toro was doing the Q&A. Michael the Mann. Michael Mann. Yeah, it was, it was fantastic. So anyway, I walk into the saucer house. The first person I see unexpectedly is Mark, stuff in his face. And <laughs> I don't even remember who you're sitting next to. Were you next to Del Toro? No, so get, get this. I'm, so, I, I, okay, quick quick uh, a side trip. Yeah. I'm, I'm sitting next to this guy who I cannot <laughs> wait to get away from because I wanted to talk to you. So it's a guy, it's an older Asian guy, maybe in his mid-60s, and he has his beautiful, probably 40-ish girlfriend, wife, who the hell knows. Yeah. She says to me, the wife says to me, uh, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to pick any three films. Just think of three films right now, your three favorite films, or, or, or not even your favorite films. 
If you pick any three films, my husband here, the 60-ish Asian actor, my husband can tell you the first shot of that film. He can name the first shots of every film. It's a good talent. So I said, okay. No, it's not, but go on. So I said, okay. <laughs> I thought I said 2001, Chinatown, and being there. And he says, okay. Uh, so he, he gets 2001 right. He gets China, Chinatown I did not remember. I don't remember the first shot of Chinatown. I don't remember what I had for breakfast. So I don't know if he's right or not. And then being there, I think he... I, I remember the first shot of being there was a shot of a television. It was the first so shot. I, yeah, I, who even like knows? That. But I think, so I, I, I kind of pushed back on his guess, but then I didn't want to, I wanted to salvage his ego. Plus I didn't give a crap. Mm -hmm. and I said, you know what? I, I was like, you know what? Actually, you know what? You might be right. <laughs> I'm going to talk to this guy over here. You're a freak. Yeah. So that was it. <laughs> well, anyway, we had a good time. The food was fantastic. Oh. Catering was great. Uh, you had to take a funicular up to the place. It was kind of uh, kind of cool. You could take a funicular yeah. or you could take the stairs. Yeah, I was, there's no, there's too many stairs. I was not doing that. But uh, I took the stairs down with a, with a TV actor whose name I can't remember. But anyway, uh, so yes, yeah, so I was there and Tashin was there. And, and uh, you know, you, what, what, was the, what was the thing you were going to say about it? Because I was slick with Tashin. Well, right? I you you wanted to pitch Tash in something. Yeah. And yeah. I thought he doesn't want to hear that crap. It's like a very nice gathering in his home. Yeah. So I was not daring you or anything like that. You were going to do it anyway. Yeah. But I was curious as to how you were going to approach, how you were going to create the moment. Yeah. Or seize the moment yeah. to walk up to him and say this thing he clearly doesn't want to hear because he's at a party. Yeah. Well, it started by engaging him and telling him that I have a number of his books and I don't read them without wearing white gloves. Which, which, by is the way, true. is true. Yeah, which is true. And uh, to underline that, the, the white gloves are out right now for this show. Wade, later Wade, segment on the show. Wade showed me a, a, there it is, I'm staring at it right now, a gigantic <laughs> Ziploc bag with a red zipper thing <laughs> of white effing gloves. <laughs> anyway, so we will get to that shortly. Uh, and Tim, we, 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 we're going to talk uh, momentarily yes. about uh, the, uh, the Black Klansman event that we were at as yes, well. Yes, yes, yes. That was quite... Uh, something ties in with that. But first, first let's, let's get going. Let's talk about some titles. And we got a great box set here, which is, uh, is one of the more beautiful ones for the season from Time Life. The Robin Williams Comic Genius um, boxed set. And it's a wonderful picture, big picture of uh, Robin Williams wearing the, uh, the the king's crown. Uh, this is just this comes with a, a a full color booklet, all five of his HBO stand-up specials, uh, footage from his USO tours, TV appearances, interviews, clips. Uh, it even has uh, a half a dozen episodes from Mork and Mindy. Uh, it's just it's a, it's a lot of it's just everything here and uh, there's a bonus DVD with the uh, 2018 HBO documentary Robin Williams Come Inside My Mind uh, which was uh, co-directed by uh, Alex Gibney it's just if you love Robin Williams if you want to see his comic genius uh, this is it this is just completely immersing yourselves in a talent who has left us far too soon and uh, it's it's terribly sad I'm still learning a lot about that that uh, Louis Bodies thing that, mm -hmm. uh, that basically killed him you know, yeah, and he, it's it, it's a kind of a form of dementia and everything else. But in any case, uh, very very sad. But this is a wonderful wonderful tribute set, twenty four page uh, booklet. It's just yeah, this is this is a great thing to give anybody who remembers Robin Williams and wants to remember Robin Williams. It's just a beautiful beautiful set. And then we've got a, a whole ton of other television guys. We're, yeah, we're, yeah, we're, yeah. We're including cool. some old stuff. 
Uh, I, I love the I loved the Gidget the Sally Fields Gidget series. Yeah. it was just you know fantastic. 19, 1965, 1966, all thirty two episodes of the complete series. Um, look, um, um, Sally Field I think uh, came into my life uh, as Gidget, uh, and who would have thought that that little bouncy girl uh, would go on yeah flying nun obviously, yeah. but became became one of the biggest movie stars ever. Yeah, you know, I mean, won, won that Oscar, and he was just a just a major motion picture star. It's really kind of an interesting throughout the arc. '80s, throughout the '80s, and right up to Forrest Gump. I mean, it's late '70s, right through the '80s was when she really, really had it going on, and uh, right up to playing Forrest Gump's mom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah sure. kind of anyway, this is a complete series. Not much on there, but it's a lot of fun. We've also got MacGyver, the original MacGyver, not that lame, just, just stupid reboot. <laughs> it's lame, man. Come on. Why do they do this with Magnum and MacGyver? And is it like, you gotta have the guy, you gotta have the, the, the one and the only, the original, Richard Dean Anderson. He's MacGyver. There's nobody else who's MacGyver. Uh, anyway, this is the first season. It's finally on Blu-ray. They have restored it. It looks better than ever. All those gadgets look unbelievably fake on Blu-ray. You can tell they're made of paper mache and, uh, and, and, and spit, but that's okay. Uh, it's all cool. It's just a. It's like the quintessential show uh, of its era. It's you know the the 80s gave birth to a whole lot of wacky stuff in the 1990s, and uh, this is one of them. And man, this was a fun show. And uh, there you go. First of all, great hair. Yeah, great hair. He had fantastic hair. Come on, 19, it's MacGyver, first season. And Blu-ray. he is one of those guys. He is one of those guys who um, led. Several series for several years. So he went on from MacGyver to do that Stargate. That's right. Uh, yeah. Series uh, of which there are like three or four or five of which he executive produces or, or produces or yeah. pops up on all of them. Yeah. So he is one of the richest guys in sort of Hollywood media. It's just insane. You wouldn't he, think it, but he, this guy's worth a couple of hundred million dollars. But it makes sense. He's been a television star, a producer, executive producer. Him and Henry Winkler. Him and Henry Winkler did all David that stuff. And David Hasselhoff. And David Hasselhoff for years and years and years. For 30 years, that guy has been a fixture on television. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Uh, hey Arnold, The Ultimate Collection, the complete uh, TV series, including two uh, movies and, a, and some bonus content as well. Hey, look, I'm a big fan of Hey Arnold. Uh, uh, a lot of fun. Did, does, does Hero, did Hero, uh, too, too old for She's her? never seen it. Never too seen it. Uh, no. so anyway, this is fantastic. If you love, uh, if you love Hey Arnold, you're going to want to check this out. Um, I find that you can sort of mark uh, the age of kids, or the age of people from, uh, from what cartoons and, and what series sort of came into their lives. And I know a lot of 20-somethings who are big, big Hey Arnold. Yeah, fans. for so sure. Check that out. We also have Sasha Baron Cohen, who is America, with deleted and extended scenes. Uh, this is, you know, for anybody that likes the Sasha Baron Cohen kind of uh, gorilla uh, approach to uh, snookering people. I'm kind of amazed that people don't know who he is now. Mm. Whatever disguise he puts on, like, honestly, I kid you not, if Sasha Baron Cohen had 18 inches of latex makeup on and were doing any kind of a phony accent, I'd still know who it was. Yeah. You're not fooling me. I've yeah. met the guy. I mean, come on. Who, who's so disconnected that they that they allow themselves to be fooled by him into doing any kind of a shtick? Anyway, th- this show really has... It kind of uh, it had a little bit of heat for a moment because he went and found a whole bunch of people and he pulled these, uh, these practical jokes on a lot of public figures, Joe Arpaio and a lot of others, and humiliated them. And it's funny in a wacky kind of... Uh, um, kind of a reverse uh, candid camera way. Um, but, you know, it's... Um, it's 
simmered down a little bit. Still, who is America? It's funny. It's intermittently funny. It's not genius all the way through, but it's what he does, and I'm sure a lot of people out there will really enjoy it. It'll be a, a nice gift to find in your stocking. The other guy uh, who has led a number of series on American television, on, on tel- television, and is also one of the richest guys in Hollywood that you wouldn't think of is uh, Scott Bakula. There he is. Uh, starting with the original Quantum Leap series, yeah. which I have in my hand right here, the complete series Quantum Leap. Um, uh, aside from the fact that my wife is in an episode of, 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 yeah. of Quantum Leap, uh, uh, it's, it's really fantastic. Otherwise, get this though. Imagine this. It's 1980, whenever this series started, 85, I think, right? And you, you go pitch a, a, a show. It's about a, a guy who's a time traveler, and he leaps back in time into other people's bodies so that he can set right what once went wrong. And he's got this holographic guy from his time period talking to him. How the hell do you pitch that? And even if you do figure out a way, who greenlights it? Uh, well, these people did, and it was actually a pretty good series. This was on for five years. It's kind of a neat show. Totally. You got to figure that whoever uh, who who EP'd that was that like a, a Larson production or something? I don't even know who that was. I can't remember. He must have had a track record. No, no. Who 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 uh, who's who's who EP'd, who's the showrunner for uh, like who created Quantum Leap? Quantum Leap? It's like a Glenn uh, Larson thing. Because you got to figure that's the type of show where if the showrunner has a previous track record, any stupid idea that tumbles out of his butt. It will get greenlit by the audience. Don Belisario. Don Bel- ah, by the so yeah. Don Belisario, who had who other, was Glenn Larson's partner, who had other yeah. shows before Quantum Leap, yeah. he has earned the cachet to walk into a network executive's office and say, "Here's an idea." Guy goes time traveling to other people, and then there's another guy he time travels too. And I don't know, I don't know what you're talking about, but you know what? You've earned your right to roll. We, you've earned your right to do something ridiculous that may not work. So let's just do it. And it winds up being Quantum Leap. Now, Knight Rider is also... Uh, yeah, that's, a, that's a Glenn Larson deal. Glenn Larson deal. That's yeah. Mill, also from Mill Creek, same people who are bringing you this uh, quantum uh, leap situation. Knight Rider, I was never a big fan of Knight Rider. Um, I, didn't have the, I did not have a model of the car. Um, I, didn't, uh, I didn't want to be David Hasselhoff. All I know is that there was Knight Rider, which is 82 to 86, not even that long. Then there was like Team Knight Rider, from which lasted for only I think a season. There was a Team Knight Rider. There was a Team Knight Rider. Really? Yes, ninety-seven, ninety-eight. Holy cow! And look, it's uh, it's it's about a. Here's the thing. Back then, you could have cars that have crazy technology, and you're like, "Ooh, that's amazing." In 2018, what car would have crazy technology that would that would make a a seventeen-year-old go, "Ooh, that's amazing"? Like Speed Racer had an amazing car. That made us go, oh my God, what an amazing car. The Mach 5. Five. But what kind of car in 2018 would make your typical 17-year-old TV viewer go, oh my God, that's an amazing car? Trans Am. Yeah, but it has to have some futuristic thing. Trans Am. See, we love the Night Rider. Trans Am with a Cylon eye. We love the Night Rider because it was futuristic and all sorts of dials and buttons and gadgets. And and, and, uh, HAL 9000 computer inside that talked like the guy on St. Elsewhere. Douglas Rain died. I know. I I know, it was lame. Yeah, we've had we've had a lot. That was, who else just died? Somebody just died. Douglas like, being the voice of the Hal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Douglas Ray, the, the voice of Hal. No, somebody else just died recently, just like uh, yesterday or the day before or something. Roy Clark. Roy Clark died. Mm. That's right. Yeah, it's been it's been a bit of a rough week with the My fires career. and everything else. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> my career died in uh, 1998. We, we also have Community, the complete series. Uh, you know, the thing about Community, which was a, a cute show. Uh, you know, it, it sort of came of age with the the office, right? It was the same kind of a thing, sort of that ensemble and picked a workplace and 
very eccentric. But you look at the people that graduated from this show. I mean, forget about it. Chevy Chase was a was a, a, a foot in the past with Community. But the other people who were who graduated from Community, uh, it's unbelievable. D- Donald Glover mm-hmm. was on Community. Uh, Joel McHale, mm-hmm. who eventually went on to to do Talk Soup, which Mark used to to to, to produce. Many, many on years e. ago. Not, yeah. not, not Joel's in a yeah, but Joel Joel would you know he was the he he inherited he the funny. mantle of talk soup. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know I mean John Oliver. It's it's amazing all the people that were on this show. You forget Keith David, uh, Paget Brewster. Really an amazing cast. You look at this, you go, wow, a lot of people really came out of that show. It's kind of amazing. So uh, anyway, that's all six seasons of Community on Blu-ray. And uh, anybody who who loved this show, you will love a Blu-ray complete set of Community. Mm, Star Trek Discovery, which was on uh, the CBS web portal. portal. I think it's called CBS Access, right? Um, uh, So this series, Star Trek Discovery, uh, Discovery, is set 10 years before the events of Captain Kirk's Enterprise. Yeah. But I think the... The the series, the Scott Bakula series, Enterprise, is set a hundred years, something like that, like that before. Yeah. The, uh, it's getting the. Yeah, that was Bakula. His dad, his dad, his dad. Look, look at me. I'm so I'm so nerdy. His dad <laughs> invented the warp drive. Is this something like a warp drive? Um, uh, so so yeah, that's where that was set. Uh, and then I guess we, 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 we get to, this, it would be this in between. Uh, yeah, the the thing that like I try that. to do sometimes with all of the Star Trek stuff is to put them all in some sort of an order. You know, when, when are these things happening? Yeah. Uh, and how do they overlap? And then once you do that, it's like, because see, the, 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 the technology in this series is incorrect. There's a book called, there's a book that came out around the time of like Star Trek 3 or 2, Rathacon, something like that, called the Star Trek Spaceflight Chronology. Which some people put a lot of work into to invent a history that brought you from the current day all the way up to the century in which Star Trek takes place, 23rd century, right? Mm -hmm. So they they put a lot of work into that. And then these morons come along and basically just discard the whole thing. Yeah, throw it all out. Look, the nerds know the books. Adhere to the books, please. Yeah. Yeah, it, what I do like about what I do like about this is the cast. I like the cast quite a lot, uh, but the technology doesn't make any sense no. in the series. No. What I find interesting is how CBS Access, which seemed like a dud out of the gates, they are making a meal out of Star Trek. They've got Star Trek Discovery. Yeah. They've got Star Trek short takes, which but Michelle is, Yeoh's not on it anymore. They uh, she's no. Supposedly they're going to bring her back in another spinoff. So oh, they have boy. Star Trek Discovery, Star Trek short takes, right? Which are, she's going to be an Oscar nominee now. She's likely oh, to be an Oscar nominee for for uh, Crazy, Crazy Rich Asians. Agents. Yeah. Then they're also they're also going to have a Star Trek um, animated uh, show on CBS Access, and CBS Access is bringing back Twilight Zone. So it seems like CBS Access might wind up being begrudgingly, you have to admit, probably the most successful of these spinoffy things of of of, of, of the networks. Yeah. No I one know. cares about Fox Access or NBC Access or yeah. ABC Access, whatever they have going. Yeah. But CBS Access, they they launched that thing on the back of Discovery. It I I think the show is just it's just not my Star Trek. It's just not my thing. Yeah. Uh, but they're spinning it off for at least three different ways, if not four, and they're doing uh, Twilight Zone. So CBS Access might have actually cracked the code. Well, you know what else cracks the code? Rescue Me, the complete series. Oh God! Who, who, uh, seriously, who, who, who's, who's going to buy that? You know what? It's really good. It's I'm, a good I'm sure show. it is, but who cares? It's a great show. No one cares. I mean, no, seriously, Rescue Me, the complete series on Blu-ray. 
Uh, long, long overdue. Uh, this is terrific. Lots of featurettes, bloopers, deleted scenes, uh, select commentaries, the whole thing. Dennis Leary, everybody forgets, was a really raw, neurotic, chain-smoking, uh, completely heavily caffeinated comic who did shtick on MTV for a yeah. long time. And then he became a very serious actor and producer uh, with Rescue Me, which was a show that he, he basically conceived uh, to honor firefighters in the wake of 9-11. And uh, it's, you know what, it's a really tight show. If you've never seen it, it's a super, it's just, it's a, it's not like all the rest of, the, it's not like Emergency, it's not like uh, Chicago Fire, it's not like all of the other firemen shows. Uh, it's not even like Backdraft. If you look at the movie, yeah. um, it it really is. A, a, it's about it's about the people. It's not about the job. It's about family. It's about a particular mentality. It's just a really really impressive show. It's very well written. Has not gotten enough credit over the years, uh, and it is out in a complete set. And uh, Rescue Me on Blu-ray is uh, is one of the one of the really bright spots of the season on Blu-ray. Uh, let's see, I got over here the complete series, That 70s Show, which, which suddenly reminds me that we ran into... Um, <laughs> That's what uh, I was going to say, uh, at the Black Klansman uh, event. Yeah, uh, uh, Topher. Yeah, Topher Grace. Uh, at the Black Klansman, because he plays David Duke in Black Klansman. Very, and really funny. Uh, yeah, very funny portrayal of a uh, 1970s young and even more clueless David Duke. Uh, uh, and this this show, this uh, one of the reasons why I love that '70s show, despite the fact it's a series from the '90s, is that it is in fact set in the '70s with these teenagers. And of course, I was a teenager, exactly the same age as all of these kids in the '70s. So, I mean, this show to me was like, uh, you know, going. Oh, it's just so so ridiculous to close. It was uh, Kurt Wood Smith. I, I want to point out all, all, a whole bunch of wonderful young people came yeah. out of this show. Obviously, Topher and all the, you know, the young people. Kurt Wood Smith was just one of the funniest things on the planet in this yeah. show. He had lines of dialogue. First of all, I know my father said many yeah. times to me and to my stupid friends, who were all just as moronic as all of his son's friends at his house. They would, we would hang out in my garage, <laughs> and my father would come out. We would play my father's drums. And he would come out there and say, none of you are drummers. You're all horrible. <laughs> You're just all terrible. But he got us all guitars and, uh, and, and anyway, so we still had a band. Anyway, this is a really, really, really great series that I, I loved. Eight seasons, uh, 200 episodes. 200 episodes? Yeah. They, they, it's a good thing it didn't run more than 10 seasons because then it couldn't be the 70s show anymore. Then it would have had to <laughs> become the, the 80s, 80s show. show. And I think there was one. They, yeah. they, they, they tried that. Oh, did they? Okay, yeah, no. did, like a different thing. I thought. That, I thought. That, anyway, this is a lot of fun. All kinds of uh, bonus features on here. The complete collection. That '70s show. The complete series. All eight seasons on twenty-four DVDs, folks. Fantastic. So, you know, it'll take. It'll take a decade just to get through all this. Uh, then we've also got Rocco's Modern Life, the complete series from Nickelodeon. Uh, not exactly my style of animation, but it does come out of that Ren and Stimpy-ish. Uh, highly stylized, very loose world where things are so grotesque and misshapen that it takes you at least half the season to figure out what exactly what animals they are. Uh, I mean, did anybody ever know that Ren and Stimpy was a dog and cat? Seriously. Mm. How many people saw every episode of that and just said, I don't know what those things are? <laughs> no, yeah, exactly. So anyway, uh, Rocco's Modern Life, pretty funny. I'm not going to show it to my daughter. It's uh, certainly not appropriate for her, but uh, this is eight discs, and uh, it'll 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 give you a, it'll give you a little bit of a uh, trip with this this weird show. There are some very very funny episodes on here. Sand in your navel is one of the most famous ones, and uh, I would almost recommend 
watching that first because you'll get the the whole the whole style of the show immediately from watching Sand in Your Navel. Anyway, Rocco's Modern Life also comes with a collectible poster uh, by Joe Murray. So uh, one of the one of the brighter spots on Nickelodeon in these last many years. Uh, I have Scorpion, the complete series. I did not know that this series Scorpion, which is a series about these sort of uh, geniuses all led by a sort of central genius and an FBI guy. Uh, to solve the more complicated sort of espionage international crimes of the world. And, you know, they're all quirky and this, that, and the other thing. I kind of hate the show. I always did uh, this this series. But I did not know it was based on a, a guy, an actual guy. Yeah. 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 A hacker guy. Yeah. It was kind of a genius in the team that was sort of built around him and all that kind of stuff. So it is. Uh, but I just really never cared for the show. Nevertheless, those of you who do will enjoy the entire complete series. Uh, let's see, four seasons of the show, lots of special features, uh, including audio commentaries on several episodes uh, and uh, some behind-the-scenes uh, stuff and a lot of deleted scene stuff, too. Gag reels and all that stuff with television series. Scorpion, the complete series. All right, we're going to move into some uh, British TV now, and we got our first giveaway. We have our first giveaway. Yay! Crowd, this cue applause, cue, the, cue laughter, whatever. Uh, our first giveaway is going to be the uh, complete collection of Detectorists. Have you guys seen this show? I don't think Detectorists? I know that show. Oh my gosh, it's so funny. It's so unbelievably funny. Uh, this is for, uh, an Acorn show. This is uh, Acorn TV. Uh, Detectorists is absolutely outrageously funny. So it's uh, it stars um, uh, Toby Jones and Mackenzie Crook as these uh, weirdos who are metal. De- they, 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 they have metal detectors. They're always looking for metal. Anyway, it's basically a, just a quirky buddy show. But it is uh, it is absolutely hysterical. The, uh, the they're, they're just so they're just such a couple of freakish losers, you know. <laughs> and they are. It's just you know just watching these losers and they and they're just and one of them wants to be an archaeologist and uh, they're just looking for. They got their metal detector going, and that of course is a metaphor for everything else that's wrong in their lives. It is absolutely hysterical. It is really really funny. Toby Jones continues to be such a delight as an actor. Uh, I discovered him when he was the guy who did not win an Oscar for playing Truman Capote. Yeah. You remember He's that? Cool. Oh, I love Tr- I yeah. love Capote. The one yeah. with Bullock. But the, but the other Capote film, not not, not the Seymour Hoffman film, yeah. but the one. Oh yeah, he, the uh, the other one, whatever correct. it was called. He's so good. Yeah. Was it was it Sandra Bullock? I can't I remember. I think she played Harper Lee in that one. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, so we're gonna give away two copies of complete collection of Detectorists. Uh, send us an email, and this applies to everything. So we're going to choose our winners uh, by November 30th. Make sure your email gets to us by November 30th. If your email has a December date on it, yeah, don't. It's too late. So November 30th, you got a good long time to listen to the show and get in for all these things. Everybody can send us email. Send us an email to gods at digigods.com or gods at cinegods.com. This goes for all the giveaways. So note this down. Gods at, cinegod- gods at digigods.com or gods at cinegods.com. Uh, put for this one metal. Just put metal in the subject line and your uh, name and address in the body of the email. And uh, on November 30th, when uh, the clock strikes midnight and uh, December rolls around, we will pick a couple of very, very fortunate people to win uh, the complete collection of Detectorists, which is a wonderful box set from Acorn. Moving on, got some more British television over got there. Got some more. I got some more British stuff. Uh, and uh, yeah, Tim, I'll let you let you. Well, the Benedict Cumberbatch, Martin Freeman, Sherlock, the complete series, uh, which I watched like a, a, a year because what they would do is they would run these on BBC America because I don't have cable. 
Uh, so I would watch them on BBC America, about a year behind everybody else who was actually watching them in real time on, 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 on cable. Uh, so I had to not talk to people all the time about what the hell was going on on this show. And it's really, really good. This is my favorite work of Benedict Cumberbatch, his, his interpretation of Sherlock. It was very cleverly done. I love the way they used the graphic designs and everything in the show. I love the way, I love the way they made Martin Freeman not a bumbling idiot uh, and, and, and really gave him a through line and a backstory. Uh, it was just really, really neat, uh, this particular version of Sherlock. This is a complete series. Uh, the show includes hours of bonus content, but it doesn't say what it is. So, you know, uh, but yeah, what the heck, there it is. We also have a really interesting thing called Killing Eve, um, which uh, was a BBC uh, production, got uh, a couple of Emmy nominations. Really, really, really very interesting and some terrific performances. Um, and this is, a, this is kind of, I don't know, if this had been made, you know, maybe 70 years ago or something like that, it would have been with uh, Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. That that's the kind of movie that it would have been, uh, but it, as it is now, we uh, we get some some a completely different uh, collection of actresses. Uh, we get Sandra Oh and uh, Jodie Comer, who are just as good in uh, many respects. So you've got one who is a uh, kind of a security operative, who just you know works basically a, a wage slave job and wants to be a spy. And then you have uh, the other one who is actually kind of a hit woman, uh, assassinate, assassin of sorts. And um, this becomes a, um, how, do you want to, how do you put it? It's, it's sort of like a, it's, it's not cat and mouse. It's, it's more just a, it's one of those kind of psychological, I guess a, a psychological version of the Prince and the Pauper, maybe? Does that make sense? Mark's snorting at me. No. No? Makes no sense. Okay, never I've mind. Never seen the show, I can't anyway, uh, so Killing Eve, really, really good production, BBC production. Uh, it's on Blu-ray. And, uh, you know, add it for people who like uh, kind of psychological thrillers and, and uh, BBC fare. It's really good. Sandra O's oh great, by the way. And she got it. She's, you know, she's still at it. She got an Oscar nomination. She's been a, an Emmy nominee. She's, she's a great actress. Keep her going. Outstanding. Thank you for letting me do the Doctor Who's. Uh, everybody who listens to this show knows that I'm quite ridiculous about Doctor Who. The female Doctor Who series, which is going right now, it's, it's very good. It's very good. Some very, very clever stuff. She's, um, uh, she, her Doctor Who is very much in the mode of my favorite Doctor, who would be Tom Baker, who would have been the fourth Doctor, I think, from the 70s, middle 70s Doctor. That's my guy. Uh, and she's doing an interpretation that sort of harkens back to him. Here we have uh, Matt Smith's Doctor Who. Uh, the, the, the complete series, which is really neat. Um, played opposite Karen Gilligan. The Doctor always has these companions that he goes around doing stuff with. Uh, they're, they're usually, but not always, women, and sometimes women and men, but, but very often they're women. Uh, and, I, and one of the things I love about Doctor Who is the way they sort of enfranchise all of these women, particularly in the modern series of Doctor mm -hmm. Who, but this, totally. was true, this was true going all the way back yeah. uh, to all the Doctor Whos. It was one of the first sort of sci-fi shows. The Doctor was the Doctor. But he always needed his companion to help him, and they were always sharp and very funny. So, uh, very funny. So, this is Kieran Gilligan, 30 hours, 45 episodes, and a free comic. Then we have the Christopher Eccleston and David Tennant crossover of Doctor Who, which is also quite good. Uh, loved uh, both of these guys as Doctor Who. Uh, Tennant's Doctor Who was a very serious guy. Uh, he, he's probably the most serious Doctor Who since maybe John Pertwee played Doctor Who, I think he was the third wow. Doctor right yeah, before, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. It was, you know, it was, he was sort of in that mode of the Doctor. 
Uh, also on the show with them, you had B Billy Piper and Freeman and Freema Abigail, who were uh, the Doctor's companions. Very Jenna Coleman pops up eventually, and then we have the most recent Doctor Who up until our new one with the lady, Peter Capaldi's series of Doctor. Who. Peter was great too. He, Peter was great. You know, kind Peter of a rock great. and roll Doctor yeah. Who. And I, one of the things that I loved about this one is the Doctor got old again. Yeah, uh, the Doctor began old, yeah. as an old man. Yeah. Uh, and they and they played with that a lot in this series. The fact that when he came back this time, because he had been a young, handsome, strapping guy yeah. running around and stuff like that, and he gets back this time, he's like, "Hey, yeah. <laughs> like, what the hell's going on here?" And uh, and Jenna Coleman played opposite him and Pearl Mac, and they sort of you know poked him about how old he was, and he's like, "If you think I look old, you, how old I actually am?" Because the doctor's nine hundred years old. Uh, the, so good stuff, Doctor Who. The uh, the fa you know Doctor Who, the oldest continuous. Yes. Franchise of any kind yes. in the world, yeah, and always will be. Yeah, it's never going away. Yeah. 150 years from now, there will be a new Doctor. Now, though, it took them 60 years to get to a female yes. Doctor Who, and that was one of the ones that I that I that I because you know me, I usually don't yeah. care about this kind of you know the black James Bond and yeah. and, and, and black Robin yeah. Batman and all the who I don't need a black James Bond. <laughs> Just you know James Bond's a white dude. That's fine. You know you can have it, but Doctor Who. The whole point of them. Is that he regenerated? Yeah, those lives. Yeah, there's no reason for him not to come back as a woman. Uh, you know, this, this, so it didn't make any sense. Could he be? But the thing is, every Doctor Who has been British. Yeah, could Doctor Who come back as like, let's say, a Ukrainian or a Nigerian who doesn't even speak English? Uh, that would throw people for a loop. Yeah, maybe an no. Aussie. I could go for an Aussie Doctor <laughs> Who, but that's about as, that's about as far as I'm going to go with that. Yeah. All right. Uh, we've also got Merlin. The Adventures of Merlin, the complete series, uh, also from BBC, uh, with bonus features and fridge magnets. Now, I'm not overly a fan of uh, this incarnation of Merlin. I, I love Excalibur as a movie. Uh, any, any other in, uh, versions of anything from the Arthurian legends I'm not particularly fond of. But uh, you know what? Uh, it, it has a following. People love this thing. It ran for a good long time. And this is a lovely, lovely box set. Uh, it's got all the uh, the original bonus features, the commentaries and the video diaries and all that stuff. And it has the fridge magnets. So, uh, look, I mean, young Merlin, it's, you know, it's the it's the thing that we're doing now, right? Everything is the young something or the, the, the prequel to something. So all of our origin stories, you know, Gotham and everything else, it's all, it's, it's in that same vein. But anyway, uh, the, the, the Adventures of Merlin, you know, uh, certainly still uh, top tier BBC. So uh, not my particular version of it, but I respect what they were doing. The, um, let's see, this would be the complete series for Orphan Black. Uh, Tatiana uh, Maslani, uh, who played uh, several different versions of her own clone in this series. She's just astounding in this series, uh, this actress. Uh, she I think was she never nominated for, for an Emmy Award. Who? Tatiana oh, Maslany. Yeah, she was, for she sure. Was. Okay. Definitely, yeah. Uh, so just astounding. All these different characters. Versions of the, about a, it's about a cloning program, super secret uh, agent sort of stuff going on in the background. And uh, the premiere episode of this show has a really fantastic opening scene. Uh, sh shocking and, 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 and very powerful. And I'm not going to ruin it for anybody. But even if you only watched just the premiere episode of this, you would really love the setup of Orphan Black. You should check it out. And, her, and her, again, her work is just fantastic in the show. It, it, and it's funny, too. It's a really, really funny show. Uh, anyway, the complete set, not a lot of special features. 
Uh, yeah, no, not a lot of special features. You think they do like a audio commentary or something about the yeah. creating of? Uh, yeah, that's yeah. Right. Uh, I guess they'll do it the next time they release it. Orphan Black, the complete series. And then we got a couple of shows that start with the, and that's the only thing they have in common. Uh, Victoria, the uh, complete second season is out, and you can still get the first season as well in a box set. Victoria and uh, the complete uh, seasons one and two, which is the show. It's on PBS. It's the uh, it's about Queen Victoria, the whole deal, and um, it's uh, it's a really really good show. I don't think it's as good as The Crown. I like it. Uh, I recommend it, but it's certainly not uh, not top tier. But Jenna Coleman is absolutely fantastic as Queen Victoria. Tom Hughes is uh, is also very very good, and uh, Rufus Sewell in the uh, in the first season is also quite good. So that's on Blu-ray. And then we also have uh, Brenda Blethyn as Vera, the sets one through seven collection. Brenda Blethyn, just a, an absolutely brilliant actress. And one of the best uh, detectives that they've ever had on a British show. Uh, the complete set of Vera, sets one through seven. Uh, also from uh, ITV, the people who do uh, uh, Downton Abbey. And this is from RLJ, the, uh, the Acorn people. So uh, Vera, sets one through seven. And we uh, now have some more giveaways. Ah, a lot of stuff here. So we're doing three giveaways from WellGo. And they are all very, very different shows. So WellGo uh, has given us three really interesting uh, Hong Kong films, Chinese films, Hong Kong films, both. Uh, the first one is Detective D, The Four Heavenly Kings. Now, this is the, uh, the third of the Detective D movies. And Detective D is, a, is kind of like a medieval Chinese Sherlock Holmes figure. And uh, they've made a number of these. Choi Hak, the, uh, the famous uh, Vietnamese-born uh, Hong Kong director, uh, and producer, guy produced the the killer and a lot of early John Woo movies. Uh, these are these are his brainchild. They are just massively loaded with CGI and all kinds of funky stuff. It's kind of like if Indiana Jones and Sherlock Holmes were wrapped into the same person. Uh, anyway, the these things have gotten progressively sillier as they've gone along. But Detective D, The Four Heavenly Kings, is pretty darn spectacular and rivals any Hollywood movie in terms of action and uh, special effects. We've got three of these to give away. Just send us the email to godsdigigods.com or godsdcinegods.com and put D, D-E-E, -E, in the subject line, and you will be uh, chosen by November 30th for uh, one of our three sets of Detective D and the Four Heavenly Kings on Blu-ray with lots of, uh, lots of fun goings-on in them. Uh, the others include Believer which is a lot more gritty and, and tough and suspenseful. Believer is more kind of hard-boiled uh, hard uh, cop stuff. Uh, this, is, this is the, um, this is a, 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 an adaptation of Drug War, which is uh, the Johnny Toe film. Uh, it's just a heavy, heavy action. We've got three of these to give away. Uh, send us an email with a Believer in the line. The subject line. And then the last one is Girls versus Gangsters. And Mike Tyson. Uh, Mike, look at Mike in the corner. It's just so ridiculous. Mike Tyson's doing nothing but making Chinese movies these days. It's ridiculous. Sometimes he's good in them, like in, like, you know, but sometimes he's just absolutely horrible. And Seagal, it was the worst. It was the worst. It was horrible. It was so, it was dreadful. It was dreadfully dreadful, but it was so good. Oh, no, it was truly terrible. Anyway, so Girls versus Gangsters, you know, look, Ivy Chen, Fiona Sit, and Ning Chang, and Mike Tyson. 
Uh, look, it's three. It's three really ad absolutely adorable, hilarious girls and Mike Tyson. I don't know what else to tell you. There's just nothing else going on here. It's uh, it's comical. It's silly. We got three Blu-rays, uh, three DVDs to give away. So send us a, an, an email that says Tyson in the subject line, and you will be entered to win one of our uh, three copies of Girls vs. Gangsters and Mike Tyson. Mm -hmm. Crazy. Uh, all right. So now we're gonna go through our four Ks a lot of which we've talked about previously and uh, these are just the these are the ace blu-ray the ace 4k blu-rays of the season uh, whittled it down to the uh, the essentials and uh, we'll all just kind of roll through them real quickly I'm still gonna recommend solo even though I, I have problems with the film it's a gorgeous 4k it's gonna show off your whole 4k system beautifully and uh, I am kind of hoping that they finish off the uh, the, 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 the franchise uh, it's it suggests other movies I haven't heard the next solo announced. Do we know if are they no. going to make a second solo? Are they going to fulfill that no. whole thing that they teased at the end? No, they no Kathleen Kennedy and Lucasfilm. They had to go back and really decide what to do with this thing because they obviously they're they they thought that the appetite for Star Wars was so insatiable that people will line up by the trillions to see any goddamn Star Wars going to tumble out of their ass. Well, you know what? Solo proved that's not true. So the Boba Fett spinoff, forget that. Solo, you know, sequel, forget that. They've got to hunker down and decide how they want to move forward. And they're moving forward partially, like CBS All Access, they're hunkering down with the Disney streaming. Nah. They're going to do the Mandalorian, and they'll do some other Star Wars thing. See, I I think there's, well, they're going to have to figure it out. But anyway, I do. I kind of want to see the rest of the story of Solo. I mean, even whether it's one film or two films, I kind of want them to continue it. Anyway, it is a good 4K. And also, I really, really like what they did with Ant-Man and the Wasp. I, uh, I love those movies. I think those are fun. I think those, are, those are the better ones of the, of, of the universe. They're, they they're, really they're are. Because they're fun. They're not too self-serious, too self-important. And Paul Rudd is actually, you know, kind of a, uh, a neat sort of leading man kind of guy. And I'm also going to recommend uh, for 4K gifts that you cannot do better than Deadpool. I, I just think Deadpool 2 is so, so fun. It's better than the first movie in many, many respects. And it's got other other characters in it who are just absolutely. I mean, Domino just rocks this movie. What a what a what a fantastic. wonderful surprise she is. She's fantastic, and that's why when you look at this, when you look at the cover, she is on top. She's on top of Deadpool. Yeah, uh, look, the, the the movie's called Deadpool, but like a few uh, other films uh, lately, um, it's the ladies who are actually the heroes of the movie. Like Mad Max, like, right? In Black yeah. Panther. Yeah. You know, yeah, you know the true. movie's called Black Panther. You know what? If his sister and his mom and his girlfriends and yeah. the black general girl don't come save his ass 20 minutes, every 20 minutes, one of those chicks is saving his ass in that movie, which I thought was fantastic, by the way. Uh, Jim Henson's The Dark Crystal. Man, it's been 20-some-odd years. since. It's been close to 30 years since we lost yeah. Jim. Jim. Yeah. I, I, I think. Anyway, 1982, Jim and Frank Oz, of course, The Dark Crystal. Um, um, look, this was, uh, they don't make them like this. They don't make these kinds of things you know, with giant puppets and whatnot. Today, this would be, what would it, well, it would be mostly CGI today. Maybe some kind of an animatronic something or other. But it wouldn't be a bunch of dudes inside, no. you know, puppets with, you know, moving the eyeballs yeah. and another guy you know, doing the tail. It wouldn't be that today, that's for sure. And I, you know, I really love this movie. Packed full of all kinds of special uh, uh, bonus feature stuff, deleted scenes, commentary with Brian Fowle, the, uh, the storyboard, uh, a, a language, that whole language. Little thing yeah. they, they got a whole little language thing in there. It's really, really, really neat. Jim Henson's The Dark Crystal. Man, I missed that guy. 
We also have uh, the Jack Ryan Five Film Collection. We talked about this a few weeks ago. I won't uh, belabor it anymore, but you get the Hunt for Red October, Patriot Games, Some of All Fears, Clear and Present Danger, and Jack Ryan Shadow Recruit, directed by Kenneth Branagh, of all people. Uh, and, you know, of all the Jack Ryans, you know, look, sorry, Harrison Ford still owns it, but, uh, you know, Ben Affleck and... Uh, all the rest of them. It's 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 an, you know it's it's a fun franchise. Uh, it, it, not all the films are great, but if you if you love the Jack Ryan this films, uh, or if somebody that you know does, this is a great 4K collection. You also have uh, X Men three film collection. This is the uh, first three X Men films in uh, 4K. And you know you have to give I have to admit you have to give Fox credit for the X Men series. I have to say that they always seemed a little more. Uh, adult and a little more sophisticated, at least thematically, than all the other than all the Marvel stuff. The first two X Men and X Men uh, United were directed by Brian Singer, and then then came Brett Ratner for X Men: The Last Stand, and he just ruined everything, didn't he? Like he always does. And X Men: Last Stand is definitely not good. X Men is terrific. Although I remember when that film came out, which by the way, that thing came out in two thousand. Yeah. This, this series is eighteen years old. Yeah. Uh, when it came out, I remember thinking this movie's only an hour and forty five minutes. Like, how can you tell an origin? How can you tell an origin film with all those characters in an hour and forty-five minutes? And the answer is, you really can't. can't. You can't. So the movie always felt as if yeah. it was somehow compromised somewhere in the editing stage, whatever it was. But X Men Two was great, and then of course X Men Three happened, and that derailed the series for a while. But if you if you love the X Men and you're an X Men completist, these they look great. Um, audio commentary on all three films. Not much in the way of extras that we haven't seen before, but still, you're buying the four K. And that's uh, X-Men 3 film collection. We have uh, sung the praises of Spike Lee's Black Klansman, which is going to be an Oscar contender. And uh, we got one to give away. Mm. Uh, Black Klansman on 4K. That is uh, courtesy of the good people at Universal. Uh, go ahead and send us an email to gods at digigods.com or gods at cinegods.com. And in the subject line, just put black. And you will, uh, by, by November 30th, one person will win a 4K Ultra HD Blu-ray of Black Klansman, just in time to uh, watch what everybody's going so nuts about. But it is, uh, it is one of the films of the season. It will definitely be in the mix for, uh, for Oscars and awards. Top 10 for me. By the way, don't, I'm glad you didn't say, put in the subject line, Klansman. Because <laughs> you're going to get hundreds of emails that say Klansman, and people start wondering about you. The FBI comes looking around. Yeah, uh, NSA. NSA. <gasps> yeah, exactly. What are you yeah. doing here? Um, 20, 20 year commemorative anniversary um, of release 4K Ultra HD of Steven Spielberg's film Saving Private Ryan. 1998, this was. Man, uh, I was just looking at the, the credit list here for this movie. So, you know, I mean, not that we don't know all these people, but sometimes uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's amazing what one movie can do. Uh, for a whole bunch of careers. So obviously Tom Hanks, Tom Sizemore, Ed, Edward Burns, Barry Pepper, Adam Goldberg, Vin Diesel. This movie pretty much gave us Vin Diesel. Yeah. Um, uh, Jeremy Davies, Matt Damon, Ted Danson, Paul Giamatti, Dennis Farina. This is just, you know, just, just you know, so, wow, you know, uh, just, a, just a hell of an accomplishment there. The movie itself, um, in terms of, uh, of, of big war films, uh, holds up. Uh, that opening sequence is, you know, it's, it's you know, that that's in the Thin Red Line. Now, the thing of it is, this movie came out the same year, right at the same time as Thin Red Line. I actually prefer the Thin Red Line. A lot of people do. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, I do too. Uh, I do too. But this, you know, this was, you know, this is a Spielberg film. That's a Malick film. And frankly, if you, it's a, it's sort of a, if you're wondering what the difference between Spielberg and Malick is, it's in these two films. 
Yeah, you know, for sure. It's, it's, it's between those yeah. two films. This is packed full of all kinds of stuff. So you really, I mean, you can't go wrong. Uh, three discs uh, on Blu-ray, just just everything can think of. And that score by John Williams. By the way, that, that that film really was, when you think about it, that was the pinnacle, the top yeah. moment of Harvey Weinstein's power. It kind of was. You're but right. Look how that yeah. film was just going to win. Ryan yeah. was going to win Best Picture, no doubt about it. And then it. Shakespeare in Love. And then Shakespeare in Love. Pulled the some, rug out from under it. Pulled the yeah. rug out. Some not forgettable. It's fine. It's good. Yeah. Whatever. But it's like yeah. it was. It was you. not its year. But that really was the ultimate exercise of Harvey's power. Let me tell you, we got uh, of all the 4Ks coming out this season. This is the one gift set that went that, that just goes completely bananas. Now, if you want, if you're a fan of the dude, man, <laughs> hey man, we're anarchists. Or no, we're nihilists. Nihilists. We're yeah. the nihilists. Okay. If you, if look, The Big Lebowski, terrific film. Just an absolutely terrific film. One of the best Coen Brother movies uh, of all time. That dream sequence still just puts me yeah. in stitches. That yeah. Busby Berkeley style thing that he does with the dance and the tool belt. Can't get enough of that. Because we, we've been talking about the Battle of Buster Scruggs yes, uh, for the last I don't know, couple of couple. We'll be people will be talking about it again. Yeah, in, in the mode, in the mode. You it's know? in the mode. Yeah. Uh, but if you really want to go nuts and you know, I do not roll on Shabbat. I mean, there's so many great lines here. <laughs> Don't mess with the Jesus, man. Uh, for a while there, the Fairley brothers and the Cohen brothers. Yeah, uh, they had this sort of thing going back and forth. You know, movies like Kingpin and and, yeah. and whatnot from over there with the Fel Fairleys and something about Mary. And then the Coens had these. The Coens were always a little bit darker. Although yeah. Kingpin's pretty dark. Don't they? They kinda, uh, but they there was just like a, a wit and sharpness and outland outlandish sort of circumstances. They handled it better than anybody else. The Fairleys kind of fell off. They did a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, well, Peter Farrelly directed Green Book. That's right, Green Book. Yeah. Peter Farrelly's trying to go legit this season, so we'll see how Green Book fares. But uh, it certainly won the audience award at uh, Toronto, so that means something. That usually is a harbinger of Oscar glory. In any case, the Blu-ray has a bunch of extras on it, featurettes mostly making of stuff, uh, Dude's Life, uh, Lebowski Fest. You know, there's a whole lot of interesting stuff here. But let me tell you, if you really want to go nuts, you get this. Ah. This is what you get. You get the 4K Big Lebowski 20th anniversary limited edition with the bowling ball bag. <laughs> it's a big Come ass on. box. Come on, it's ridiculous. <laughs> it's a huge freaking box with the, uh, the with the, the, the with the, the bowling ball bag in it, and, and 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 you even get a kind of a makeshift bowling ball, and you get a bowling shirt, and you could you do the whole thing. I mean, it's ridiculous. Why would you want this? I don't know, but somebody clearly does. I, you know what? I still have my Big Lebowski DVD special edition, yeah, which uh, which was packaged similarly, but it had a little plastic bowling ball. Yeah, well, this doesn't. This is like a full size bowling ball bag. It really is. That 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 thing's got the whole day bag. It's, 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 it's the whole nine ball. yards. Look at this thing. It's fantastic. So anyway, if you want to really, really go to town on somebody, and and if you know somebody who really loves this movie, like loves this movie. That's what you get them. Oh, I got the Shape of Water here. You know, I got uh, nominated for 13 Academy Awards. Uh, Guillermo del Toro, of course, uh, Sally Hawkins. And I got to tell you, this movie, um, while I appreciated it at the time, eh, tried to watch it. <laughs> tried, tried, tried to popped it in. Tried to watch it. Couldn't get, couldn't get through. Yeah, uh, ten minutes of it. I don't know. Sometimes yeah. that happens. Uh, with nevertheless, for those who do love it, this is uh, this is packed full of all kinds of. Uh, special features again, uh, fairy tales, uh, anatomy of a scene, blah, 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 this, that, and the other thing. So I don't know. Uh, if you still like it, give it a go. Uh, oh, the original Superman, the movie? Yes, on 4K. I love this movie. This is still my favorite Superman movie. Well, and then I'll give it back to Tim, but 
to me, Superman and Star Wars were the two films of our generation that activated all of these future filmmakers. They, they, they were the two. You know, people saw Superman and just, it launched, it, la it had such a charm, but was still exciting. And people, and even now, because it's, it's funny how everybody who was uh, so influenced by that film, all the superhero films today still cannot match that mix of no. charm and excitement yeah. that the original Superman had. And it's sad because a lot of people who direct those new superhero films were, were influenced by Superman. No CGI. Yeah. Remember, you'll, you'll believe, believe a man, man can fly. fly. That's yeah. right. When you, yeah. see, when, you see, when you see Christopher Reeve flying in this movie, yeah. they strap that homie uh, into a thingy yeah. in, in a crane, and they're swinging his ass around the yeah. sky, yeah. You know, hundred feet up in the sky. That's what Chris did. You yeah. know, uh, this Christopher Reeve did. And and there it is. It was Christopher Reeve. I think it's the thing. Yeah, Christopher Reeve. He, somehow he embodied not just the physical the, with the hair and all that kind of stuff of Clark Kent and Superman. Yeah. Um, he made us believe it. When you, you bought it, and I, and I got to tell you, Margot Kidder, what wonderful casting! Yeah. But she was just so delightful as Lois Lane in this movie. And then you have uh, Ned Beatty. Oh my uh, just, gosh! And and and, and casting and against yeah. cast Hackman casting against type going with Hackman. Yeah, uh, you know, just you know, who'd have thought Gene Hackman? You know, but just fantastic stuff, and man. And Dick Donner and the the John Williams music, it all it all came together. Uh, commentary tracks on here from a few executive producers, uh, the the Salkins and whatnot. Fantastic Superman. That, that movie, I remember seeing that movie, and the opening credits come, and the fanfare begins, and it's the first film to this day I've ever seen where the opening credits, when they were over, got an applause. It's from true. the audience. It's true. Because yeah, at the time, the, because obviously, the, like if, if God had a theme, it would be the Superman theme from John Williams. And also the opening credits with the 3D, with the letters and words coming out at you. Uh, it got an applause when it was over. I still have not seen that to this day again. So we have a couple of legendary franchises, too. Also on 4K, uh, all three First Blood uh, Rambo movies are out on 4K. And uh, it's interesting watching them again. So the, the original First Blood is a real movie. It's a real movie about a real guy who was messed up from Vietnam, and mm. Stallone is really acting, and it's based on an actual novel, and it looks really good on 4K. They've done a really good job kind of preserving the grit and the darkness of it. And then we get to Rambo, First Blood Part Two. And it, which was Rambo 2 in some places for some reason, even though there was never a Rambo 1. Anyway, uh, Rambo First Blood Part 2 is just a ridiculous movie. He's now not that guy anymore. Now he's just, he's just a killing machine and he's just going to wipe people out and he just shoots. And, well, uh, look at the Rocky films. I know. You know, Stallone starts out with these great intentions where he makes real movies and then slowly with each successive sequel, it just becomes just a big dumb lug. And then this is where it gets confusing. So Rambo 3. So you go from First Blood... To Rambo, First Blood Part 2, to what should be Rambo 2, First Blood Part 3. <laughs> but it's not. It's Rambo 3, which never made any sense. And that's why in some places, Rambo was called Rambo 2, because the retroactively, they're trying not to confuse people. But still, Rambo 3, it's, uh, anyway. By the time we are there, I think the war in Afghanistan was, uh, yes. and then that's the whole thing. There. That's uh, the whole yeah. thing. The Russians were in Afghanistan, and so still, oh, he's got to put on his bow and arrow and go and fight. Yeah. 
Mark's giving us the thumbs down. Uh, anyway, Rambo 3 is a really terrible movie. But if you like the franchise, all three are on 4K, and it's a really interesting progression. It really is. From one film to the next to the other, it's really fascinating. Um, by the way, can I say something? Yeah. Which, which, by the way, will be outdated by the time this podcast drops, but I'm going to say it anyway. Did anybody get a screening invite to Creed 2? No. And it opens next week. Yeah. Did it's not weird. get an invite. I know. And I think Todd Gilchrist saw it. Yeah, he did. He's he the did. only one. He said it was okay. Yeah, he said, well, he, I think he said he preferred the first one, but this one's still really good. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway. We now, I now return you to our regularly scheduled Thank podcast. Uh, and then the other one is uh, the Matrix trilogy on 4K, uh, which also, like most everything else that we've been talking about, has Movies Anywhere code on it. Uh, this is just way too much Matrix. Look, I love the original Matrix. The next two, just can't, can't get with it. Okay. I can't. It's Can I just, say something? Yeah. Let me tell you something. Yeah. So I'm in Los Angeles for a few months now to yeah. work, right? Sure. The people I'm staying with, last week... We're watching The Matrix. Uh, because their children had never seen it. So, the, so I rewatched The Matrix for the okay. first time in many years. Yeah. The original Matrix totally holds up. Totally holds it's up. It's great. It's fantastic. The other two, which I, are dreadful. Yeah. I don't, know. It, 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 I don't know even know why they made them. I don't, <laughs> well, I remember when they, they shot them... Ba- remember how they shot them back-to-back? Yeah. And that was a big deal at the time. Yeah. You and know? now everybody does that. Yeah, they, they would have been better off not doing that because they, 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 if they would have saved the production of three, they could have corrected the mistakes that they made in two. True. But they were stuck with the mistakes that they made because they shot them back to back. Well, uh, the most interesting thing here on, uh, on The Matrix is the uh, uh, commentary with Cornell West and uh, Ken Wilber. There's also a critics commentary with our good friends Todd McCarthy and uh, John Powers along with David Thompson. So, I mean, there's some, some very interesting stuff on here that's worth checking out. Um, so, again, you know, I love the first film. We all love the first film. Don't like the next two. But it's still an interesting trilogy. It is a trilogy. If you want to, if you know somebody that's nuts for it, it's a great box set. They got bigger, but they did not get better, those movies. Uh, no. Just bigger, not better. I had forgotten completely that, Wolf, that Wolfgang Peterson uh, directed Air Force One. Yeah. Uh, just, I don't know why that just popped out of my head. You know who loves Air Force One? You know who loved it at the time? Uh, Mark's mom. <laughs> oh, yeah. Really? Yeah. You used to tell me that. You used to say, your mom loves only one kind of movie, any movie where Harrison Ford is saving the world. It's horrible. And then <laughs> the, the, the funny thing is that my, my mother, towards the end, right, she, actually, this is years before my, my, my mother died, but what I remember she loved Harrison Ford so much, and then I got her out of the house all the way across town, which for her was, was, was like going to Timbuktu, to see the screening of Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Oh, you Right, and I thought, Ma, if, if anything will if anything will get you out of the house and out of Santa Monica and all the way across town to Paramount, it's going to be Harrison Ford. And by the way, and that and how much do we love that that Paramount main theater? Yeah, I love that theater. So I took my mother all the way across town, 15 miles to go from Santa Monica to Paramount. We see that movie. It was so horrible that I think that that actually that film actually might have killed her. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'll, I'll I'll put my best people on that, but I think it might have killed her. Well, you know, Air Force One. I, I, look, uh, uh, Wolfgang, not uh, withstanding. Not, I don't. I did not care for this movie. I like this, movie. this was this was sort of like yeah, to me. It was like you know, cheap, um, uh, Clancy. You know, you know what I mean? It's, it's, I don't know. Whatever. It's just Gary Oldman. I remember Gary Oldman sort of chewing the scenery in this movie. <laughs> that was anyway, yeah. special feature on Blue Rain director's commentary. Wolfgang, right. Wolfgang talking. My my favorite part of Gary Oldman in that was every time he said Mother Russia. There's a lot of <laughs> Mother Russia. 
There's a lot of that stuff. You know what's uh, what's really rocking on 4K right now? Uh, most recently, last weekend, this week, Incredibles 2 and The Meg. Yeah. Totally opposite movies. Are, are people going to be talking about Incredibles 2 for, for animation? I, think, I will. I will. That's, yeah. that's my number one choice right now. I love this movie. Great great, great script. Great. Movie. I love it too. Great script. But I don't know that it's it Oscar material. so much fun. Look, Jack-Jack wipes me out. Yeah. My daughter was playing with a Jack-Jack figurine for weeks afterwards. Jack-Jack is the funniest thing in any movie this year in that movie. What they do with Jack-Jack is just outrageously funny. Outrageously funny. Um, they realized Jack-Jack was underused in the first film, and they laid the seeds at the end of that first film, and man, they just go nuts with this one. Look, it's fantastic. Edna, they're all back, and it picks up right where the first film left off. And uh, it, It's oddly sort of a girl power movie, too. It is, very much so. You like it's, it's back in that vein back you were talking that, yeah, about. Right. Right, in that, right in that pocket, man. Uh, yeah, Elastigirl, Mrs. Incredible, she she owns this movie more than anybody else. She really does. It's fantastic. It's just a beautiful film. On 4K, lots of extras here, uh, deleted scenes and uh, little bits on the villains and uh, Super Baby. So funny. Uh, the Meg, I don't know. What do you guys think about The Meg? It's basically Jaws on steroids. I watched The Meg, and I, I, I really and I got into this film thinking... Maybe it would just be a big, dumb, fun thing like uh, what was the uh, the great deep the Deep Blue Sea? Remember the oh, Deep Blue yeah, Sea with Sam Rennie, Jackson, Rennie, Rennie Harlan thing, yeah. the Rennie Harlan thing. That 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 was exactly what it should have been. Just a big, dumb, but it knows it's big and dumb, and it's having a good time. Film the Meg just feels like this kind of this inflated B movie international co production that somehow is just well. not great. You get your movies anywhere. You get your movies anywhere, and that's about all you get. Yeah, on there. But, you know, it's it's a giant, it's a giant shark movie. It's on 4K. Looks great. I mean, it really does. But I, you know, it's uh... this is a movie, folks. I'm sorry, this movie is so dumb in, in, in a number of ways. But this is the dumbest thing about it. Uh, the big giant, giant shark movie yeah, comes, and there it is. It's a giant shark, and they know it's there, and it's eating this, eating whole boats, it's eating everything, right? And for whatever reason, they keep deciding to leave the safety of the compound that they are in. And get on a boat. We've already seen this shark eat a whole boat. Yeah. And we're, let's get on a boat. Let's get out of here. Let's get on a boat. No. <laughs> Don't get on a boat. That's the... Yeah, let's get on a smaller boat. And try to... No, it's just the dumbest thing in the world. And then it gets into that whole sort of um, Jaws sequence. You know, all the people at the... And I don't know. It's, it's just... To me, there's a difference between a film that knows it's being dumb and says, just come with us. And have a good time. Yeah. Versus a film that's just dumb. Yeah. yeah. Big Blue Sea, Deep Blue Sea was a film that knew it was being dumb, but said, "Come with us, have a good time. Let's yeah. just have a laugh." Yeah. And on that in that context, you can get into it. But the Meg was just sort of dumb. Yeah. And okay. I rejected it outright, Wade. Okay. That's I hate fine. this film. I'm, I'm good. I'd have killed this that. film. Wade, did I would tell you my theory about no. what about what I want to do in sure. some of these Marvel films. Go ahead. Okay. The next, actually, I think I told you this. Okay. The, uh, the next time there's a Marvel film. I'm going to sit in the audience for the whole credits, right? which you have to do anyway for the, for the super secret thing. So next Marvel film, I'm going to sit through the end credits. And you know how somewhere in the end credits, there is an enormous block of names for the hundreds upon hundreds of technical, visual, special effects people who worked on this film. And it is a block of names that scrolls for like 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. Well, I have decided that the next Marvel film, I am going to sit through that entire block of names, pick one name out and kill them. Okay. <laughs> Why not? I, 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 you can probably Facebook them. 
I'm going to find that person, and I'm just going to seek him out on Facebook or, or public records and kill them. FBI. I mean, why not? I just something I'd like to do. Okay. They have it coming, baby. coming. That's right. All right. Fair enough. Coco. Coco. Uh, it's, it, it's, it, it'll go until it goes. <laughs> we, we, we have an interview. We'll, we're we're going to do an interview in a little bit here. But yeah. uh, Coco. Uh, well, look, uh, uh, Ultra HD 4K Coco, all kinds of bonus material, deleted scenes, a lot more music. Look, who doesn't need more Coco? It, was, it really was a lovely little movie. For some reason, I was—I I don't know why. Mainly because I hate mariachi music so effing much. It's like the worst <laughs> music I've ever heard in my effing life. It's so bad. I was predisposed not to like this film, yeah. and you know what? In the end, it completely won me over. Yeah, it's a great film. It's terrific. Yeah, Pixar. Another two two winning films for for Pixar in the last uh, in this year for for Blu-ray at least, and 4K. All right, and then lastly here, uh, I think that's it for the 4K, right? We're we're at the end of the 4K. So. We, from BBC Earth, we've got a terrific 4K uh, set, Planet Earth 2 and Blue Planet 2. This is their Planet Collection. Uh, both of these are stunning, stunning in 4K. If you really want to show off your 4K stuff and it's not, you don't need a movie, you just want to show a lot of amazing photography, this is the way to do it. This will just blow your system up in, in ways that you can't even comprehend. Uh, David Attenborough totally goes out of his way on Planet Earth uh, 2. And then uh, we also have on... Blu-ray, just on Blu-ray, not 4K, is the Planet Earth collection, which is Planet Earth and Planet Earth 2. I don't know why this isn't also on 4K. You would have thought that they would have gone in, uh, in 4K to Planet Earth. Maybe it is a, there's an expense issue there. I don't know. But anyway, also a really great, uh, a terrific, great gift set. All right. So uh, now we're going to do, uh, we're going to talk about some books. And the first book we're going to talk about is uh, is our good friend Leonard Malton's new book. But first, yay, we're going to Leonard. yay Leonard. So we're going to uh, we're going to just let the interview speak for itself. We're going to uh, pop our interview with Leonard in right here, and then we will uh, pick up on that book and uh, and we will carry on from there. So Leonard, we're we're going to start right off, and uh, this is you know we were all so crestfallen when. The, the movie guide kind of came to its, its end, and it is, it is so wonderful to have a new book out from you. And uh, we're talking, of course, uh, about Leonard's Hooked on Hollywood Discoveries from a Lifetime of Film Fandom. Um, this is such a delight to read through because unlike the movie guide, it's not a reference book. This is all you. This is your personality and your experiences and your interviews. Talk, I mean, it's it's an amazing, it's really an amazing journey. And it's a it's a culmination of your entire career. Could you talk a little bit about how you just decided to, to do this book? Well, actually, the impetus came from my publisher, uh, who is a uh, very good author and a bit of an entrepreneur named Robert Mattson. And he wrote a book a uh, year before last called Mission about Jimmy Stewart's uh, career during World War II. And no one had ever written about that before, in part because Stewart refused to talk about his experiences during the war. And Robert did his homework and came up with a really good, interesting book. And he, is, he, he and his wife, Mary, run a, uh, a small imprint called Good Night, that's K-Night, Good Night Books. And he contacted me earlier this year and said, you got any book ideas wandering around? And I said, you know, I don't feel very ambitious right now to start something from scratch. But I have <clears throat> all these old articles and interviews 
which uh, I think would be fun to collect and annotate. And he said, send me samples, and I did. The next day he called and said, let's do it. And it's the uh, actually one of the nicest relationships I've ever had with a publisher. <laughs> well, it's there's so much stuff here. It's so rich. And it's, uh, you know, with the, the Tim and I were uh, have been talking about this too, the demise of Filmstruck has everybody mm -hmm. so upset. Um, because it's like our film heritage is, is evaporating, and this book is like a is 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 going back to that. It sort of restores your your faith in in the system and in the history that gave us what we have today. Uh, you, you know, I, I was particularly fascinated by the Joan Blondell interview. Um, oh, yeah. you know, I've been watching a lot of Joan Blondell lately for a whole litany of reasons. Um, but you know, her, my father was none, a of, none of which you have to justify. Yeah. But, you know, uh, is, there, is there one interview that you've done that is in this book that is your favorite? Uh, I can't pinpoint a favorite, uh, but the, the one with uh, Burgess Meredith. Oh, wow. I'm glad you said that because I was, I was about to just jump in to say, well, I can. Because <laughs> I, I really, really <laughs> thoroughly enjoyed the Burgess Meredith. He was such an interesting guy. He sure was. He had a really fascinating career. And, uh, you know, when I interviewed him, everybody knew him as the Penguin from Batman. And that became his calling card. But in the midst of doing that, he was doing live theater around the country. Uh, he wore many hats. And he'd been a producer. He tried directing. Uh, but he was a, a man who was uh, show business to the core. And he worked with Ernst Lubitsch and gave me a great Lubitsch story. That's, and it's a wonderful story, by the way. Um, it, it, that's just so fascinating. Burgess Meredith worked with Ernst Lubitsch. It's, it's just one of those <laughs> things you don't, you know, like- And, like and, and like, Sylvester Stallone. Yeah. Exactly. That, I mean, lest, there you, that, that, yeah. now that's a career. Lest we forget, yes. <laughs> so wonderful. Um, the, uh, remembering and, for, you know, forgot. You know, yes. I was like 17 when I did that interview. Yeah. I couldn't even drive myself to his home. My father had to drive me and, uh, he treated me like an adult. Uh, he was whatever, whatever the opposite of condescending is. That's what he was to me. He treated me as a, as an adult, as a, as a journalist. And, uh, that was met the world to me. You, you know, Leonard, the, the the part of the title of this book that, that that I find the most interesting is "Lifetime of Film Fandom." Fandom. You're, you're a film fan. You know, uh, guys like us, uh, we 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 are cinephiles, and sometimes we get really hitty about this stuff. But you make it okay to just be so like a fan of the pop culture of movies, not just films but movies. Talk about just loving movies a little bit for us. Well, I don't, I don't remember a time I didn't. Uh, and when I was growing up, which is a little earlier in the, in the uh, chronology than you guys, I grew up with the TV set. I'm, I'm the first generation. I'm a baby boomer. And I'm, I'm of the first generation that never was without a television set. And we had a a uh, console TV set, I remember, a wooden cabinet, and it had 
slats on the side where the speaker uh, uh, sound came through. And I thought they were like a piggy bank. And I used to put coins in there, much to my parents' chagrin. In the days when you actually had to call a TV repairman. Talk, <laughs> about, talk about strange nostalgia. <laughs> you throw them out now. They're disposable, and, even though and, even and the expensive now, That's right. Everything's disposable. Uh, but I grew up in the New York area where there were seven stations, <coughs> which was a lot more than some people had in their cities. And they had to fill all this time, all this airtime. So for children's entertainment, they ran the old Little Rascal Shorts, our gang. They ran Laurel and Hardy, later the Three Stooges. They even ran some silent comedy shorts. Uh, but so I was, I was explaining to somebody the other day, because uh, I had just seen the, the new movie Stan and Ollie and liked it very much. And I said, you know, I really know these guys because I lived with them every day of my mm. life mm. for probably 10 years and, and I've never abandoned them. And that, and that movie is so much about the, the abandonment that they experienced too. Yes, it is. And yeah. I, I have to tell you that I, I had quite a uh, startling realization at a certain point in that film that I forgot I was watching John C. Riley and Steve Coogan. Yeah. I, I actually believed I was watching Laurel and Hardy, and that's pretty amazing. Yeah, I agree. A couple of extraordinary actors, those guys. Uh, John C. Riley, man, when he first popped on the scene, who would have thunk? I know. Uh, that, that he would become uh, this sort of like a uh, real thespian, um, uh, capable of carrying films and doing character roles like this. Who would have thunk? I know. And he has survived because of his extraordinary talent. Hey, hey Leonard, talk to us a little bit uh, uh, about the bigwigs uh, of, of the golden days, Louis B., Jack Warner, and Harry Cohen. What, what were the differences between these guys? Uh, you, you talk about it quite a bit in the book. Well, uh, that comes from, you know, many interviews I did with people at, at, at various rungs of the ladder who dealt with them. Uh, I interviewed James Garner briefly uh, toward the end of his life. I said, and knowing that he hated Jack Warner mm -hmm. <laughs> and sued him to get out of his contract doing the TV show Maverick, I, I said, I'm writing something about Jack Warner. He said, oh, you are? I said, yes. I said, how would you sum him up? He says, well, he was a crude man. Mm. And that's a widely accepted description uh, of, of mm -hmm. J.L., as he was called. Uh, but like all of those guys, Harry Cohn was something of a vulgarian, too. Mm. Uh, they were, you know, they had no education. These, these people built careers uh, flying blind on the seat of their pants, whatever you want to call it. And, and yet they, they loved what they did and uh, reaped uh, considerable rewards for it. Uh, Louis B. Mayer, uh, uh, unlike some of his, his cohorts, really craved prestige. Mm. 
and uh, and that was one thing that 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 separated him from the herd. Uh, he remember this is a, a Jewish immigrant who sold more than anyone else probably sold America on this idealized vision of itself, and uh, which was to say decidedly non-ethnic, certainly not Jewish. And uh, to use a phrase that's kind of shop-worn, all-American, uh, an idealistic view of, of uh, this country and its culture and its people. Mm. You know, Leonard, I, I'm going to confess that when I looked at the uh, the, I did not uh, read the book straight through from the beginning. I I hopped around because the first thing I saw on the table of contents was remembering forgotten men, mm -hmm. and I thought, oh, he's he. That's a play off of the old Busby Berkeley number, remembering my forgotten man. And so I jumped right to it for a whole litany of of reasons that Tim is aware of that <laughs> yeah get into now. But um. That is such an important section because it talks not just about Busby Berkeley and Warner Brothers in that particular moment in time where movies meant something different during the Depression, but it kind of, it talks about a turning point. Could you talk a little bit about not just that one, but turning points in the movies? Because you are a film historian uh, of, of the first order, and um, there are so many interesting anecdotes that, that come up when you talk about turning points in, in movie history. When, can you talk just a little bit about where the, those those moments, which in your opinion represent kind of when you know a fork in the road for for the movies? Well, uh, that article is uh, dependent largely on the, the access one has to the Warner Brothers papers at USC uh, Library, the Special Collections Library, I should say, USC here in LA. Uh, and they have all of Warner Brothers' paperwork. And it's especially significant because Warner Brothers believed in putting everything in writing. It said so right on the letterhead, even on the printed memoranda pages they had. Put it in writing, verbal communication causes confusion. That's the, it was their belief. And so, thank goodness, there is this vast and fascinating paper trail where you're not relying on anybody's memory. It's immediate. It's, here's a memo that Daryl Zanuck, the head of production, wrote on this Tuesday. And here's the response he got from Jack Warner on Wednesday. And, and yeah. here's the orders that went out to Busby Berkeley on Thursday. And here's a production report for how much they managed to shoot on Friday, et cetera, et cetera. It's, I find it, I, I could live my whole life down there with uh, if they delivered food and drink, uh, <laughs> I just I just love going through this material, and it's extremely well organized too. If you take out the production folder on the Maltese Falcon, the very first thing you'll find is a memo from a reader, a staff reader in New York, recommending that uh, Warner Brothers acquire the Dashiell Hammett story, the Maltese Falcon. And that was for the 1931 version. And then mm. you, you just continue, you know, day by day, week by week, month by month. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it, it's like popcorn. I can't get enough. What, what made Warner Brothers then so different in the 1930s? It, it kind of holds a unique place. And that, that comes out in that, in that piece. Well, 
this was initially the work of Daryl Zanuck, who was their head of production, and uh, who, who throughout his career was a feisty and gutsy guy who made films that were daring, risky, uh, and, uh, and forward-thinking. And it was he, I suppose, ultimately, who gave the okay or possibly even the order to incorporate the depression into this musical film, which was supposed to take people out of their trouble and away from their da daily cares. Uh, but it's, uh, uh, it's one of the most striking musical numbers uh, of that entire decade mm. because uh, it deals with veterans of World War I who are now considered, and this was an accepted term, forgotten men. Yeah, there was the bonus army. I mean, if you do do a little homework on on uh, the Depression era, you find that this is a recurring theme. These guys fought and in some cases gave their lives uh, for their country and for the greater good. And uh, look at them now; they're on breadlines. Uh, so it, it, it's uh, it couldn't be more relevant, and it still resonates today, of course. Mm. Um, uh, you call RKO the overlooked studio, uh, and, and, and I agree. Talk a little bit. I mean, King Kong, Esther uh, and Rogers from RKO. Talk a little bit about RKO and how and how it just uh, it, it sometimes is a little bit overlooked. And could I just want to say this is why this is why Tim and I this is what happens. We're like an old married couple. That was literally <laughs> going to be my question, my next question too. So Tim just took it away. The only other oh. thing I was going to say is because. What's so interesting is, is that RKO and Columbia share the record for the most uh, best picture wins, and RKO is completely gone. You know, it's it, it really is that lost studio. So yes, can, please t talk about that. Well, uh, I've always been fascinated by that company. It, it, it was born at the dawn of the sound era, and it was a merger. Yes, they had mergers then uh, of. Let's see, the RCA company, found, founded and headed by David Sarnoff, which was then the, uh, uh, the uh, bulwark of radio, of, uh, broadcast radio entertainment, and the Keith Orpheum's vaudeville circuit, which was a chain of theaters that initially featured vaudeville uh, and then made the transition to talking pictures. Uh, and and the problem that RKO had was that it, it never had one solid leader for any span of time. A lot of people who came through there were really talented people, like David Oselznick and Marion C. Cooper uh, and uh, Pandro Berman. These were all very fine producers, but uh, the, the sands were always shifting at RKO. Uh, the man who signed Orson Welles to the dream contract of a lifetime to have carte blanche to make a film, which of course became Citizen Kane, was no longer there to support him just a year or two later when he was trying to finish Magnificent Ambersons. Uh, it, it's, a, it's, it's quite a history. And if they had done nothing but King Kong and The Informer and the Fred Astaire Ginger Rogers musicals, you know, they would be of interest 
But the fact that they did so much more, and sometimes in an eccentric way, and had made so many films that are uh, have sort of slipped through the cracks. Well, all, all those, all those, all those wonderful pre-code uh, sort of, you know, very, yeah. you know, that that stuff is just amazing. Uh, no other studio had the balls to do that stuff. They, you know, they did a little of everything. Uh, and my 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 friend Rick Jewell finally uh, finished his two-part history of RKO. It's in two volumes. And uh, and if you're interested in the real business history of this uh, unusual endeavor, then I recommend those books. I'm gonna go get those. I mm. I, I was I don't know that I was even aware of that. That's a that's a great thing to know about. That's fantastic. Well, that's the problem with university presses is that they don't have the resources to do the kind of publicity or promotion okay. and advertising that one, one might like. I think he's published by University of California Press. Mm. Well, let's, we're, we're giving it a plug here, and that's a, that's a good thing. Leonard, um, you have so many uh, photos here, uh, rare if not ones never before seen. Talk, talk, about, talk about where did these photos come from in the first place? I mean, what kind of archive had this stash? Uh, my filing cabinet, mostly. <laughs> really? <laughs> I started collecting movie stills when I was 12. And the reason I did was that I could afford them. They, in those days, I paid 25 to 50 cents for a still at an uh, average memorabilia shop in New York City. Uh, and even then, there were price gougers who, who went, you know, above that, you know, how dare you charge, you know, dollar and a half for this photo, I would say. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and it seemed like every one of those shops was run by uh, a kook or a screwball or a character of some sort. And uh, uh, I have vivid memories of uh, spending my Saturdays traveling from one to another uh, as I was publishing my fanzine, Film Fan Monthly, and wanted to, you know, find the appropriate stills to accompany the articles we were running. I had friends who were collectors. They also loaned me stills, which was great. But in those days, those pre-internet days, the Cro-Magnon era, before there was such a thing as the internet, can you imagine? Hmm. Um, I was loath to, to borrow their stills because uh, somebody had to then make a copy and uh, some Printers would mark them up with grease pens and, uh, or lose them. And I didn't want that responsibility. Compared to today, when in order to retrieve these stills and convey them to my publisher in the Midwest, uh, I just put them in my scanner, you know, and set the DPI, the required number. And a couple of minutes later, he had them. Mm. You know, Leonard, let's let's wrap out on on this topic because this is so important. You know, I, I I lived in memorabilia shops in Hollywood. You know, when I was a teenager as well. I mean, I that that was so important to me, and I collected stuff as well, programs and whatnot. And we seem to be in a place now, kind of going back to what's happened to Filmstruck and the fact that Netflix doesn't have old movies on it. Really, uh, it's all new product. Are we? With all the noise that we have there, are we at risk of losing something? And if so, 
what what can we do to to reverse it and and give the 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 history of movies a, a sheen for the new generation again? I think the 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 real question is desire. What is the desire to see these films, and how is that to be kindled or rekindled, as the case may be? Um, uh, I teach at USC, and a couple of years ago, uh, Robert Zemeckis, a proud USC alum, came with his newest film, Flight, which I thought was quite good. And he told me that, and he's been very generous to his alma mater. There's a Zemeckis uh, Digital Filmmaking Center there, uh, which he funded. And he said that walking around the campus, he, he didn't feel that buzz in the air of excitement about just devouring movies. And he was there in the 70s with a lot of other now famous filmmakers. And he said it was just before home video. And in those days, uh, the studios would uh, happily loan 35 millimeter prints to the, to the college for them to screen over, he said, over a weekend, we might watch seven John Ford films. And uh, he said, we couldn't get enough. We ate, drank, breathed, slept movies. And he was just on a superficial visit. He, was, he, he did not get that same feeling. He's right. That feeling is, is if not completely gone, uh, hard to find. And the irony is that this, right now, is the best time in history for access to those films. You know, home video started it. Uh, specialty DVD and Blu-ray uh, distributors and uh, producers uh, took a, a, a giant leap forward. Uh, and then came streaming and services like Filmstruck. They're not the only ones out there, but they were... Uh, perhaps the most prominent. And it's great to have them available. Someone's got to want to watch them. Yeah. Uh, this is why I tell, anytime I meet a parent of younger kids who says to me, oh, I'm showing my kid all the Laurel and Hardy movies. I'm showing my kid all the Disney animated features. I said, God bless you. You're passing it along. You, you know, and that's vital, absolutely vital. It does seem to be a thing that has to be bequeathed from from one generation to the next. Yeah. Uh, which uh, I mean, it doesn't seem to to be a thing that sort of happens nat naturally. When I when I teach, uh, you know, I, I I make sure to begin at the beginning. Uh, you know, sometimes sometimes I start with the Lumiere brothers, uh, um, and uh, you know, and 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 it's and, and it's sometimes it's a little hard to keep really young people sort of connected to to to, to that stuff. But if you can make that through line appear uh, to bring them up to the present day, uh, you know, I think it's worth it because that's what that's what that's the idea to pass it along. Yeah, I guess there's yeah. no no easy answer to it. No, there isn't. But uh, but there's hope. I'm not entirely pessimistic. When I go to the TCM Classic Film Festival every April, uh, I, uh, which I host in part, I'm, I'm really encouraged by the span of age, uh, or the demographics, shall we say, 
of, yeah. of who attends. It's not just, just people with blue hair. I mean, it's a range of ages and types, and they come in from all 50 states and beyond. Uh, and they're just thrilled to be here. Thrilled. Well, Leonard, that's, that should wrap it up. Thank you so much for, for speaking with us. The book is uh, Hooked on Hollywood, Discoveries from a Lifetime of Film Fandom by Leonard Malton, whom we are proud to uh, claim as a friend and a colleague. And uh, Leonard, good luck with the remainder of, uh, of your screeners and, and award season. I know we're inundated, so uh, I assume you must be too. So there it is, Leonard Malton's Hooked on Hollywood, uh, Discoveries from a Lifetime of Film Fandom. A terrific book. Uh, Great book. It's, it's, it's interviews. It's you know, everything we just talked about. It's absolutely be, uh, it's just wonderful. Yeah, and, and the personal stuff. Uh, it's so long. Leonard's been writing about movies since he was a little kid. Yeah. Uh, in, the, in the middle, early 60s. Amazing. And had met all these people and did all these things. And, uh, and I loved that he said uh, he, all he had to do was go over to his file cabinet <laughs> and he had his own archive, his own personal archive of photographs and memorabilia and stories. Just fantastic. Uh, there's another wonderful book we were sent. It's not quite so movie-related, but it is, uh, you know, it, it, it sort of ties in uh, a little bit. Joe DeYoung, A Life in the West by William Reynolds, which is uh, this beautiful coffee table book on the, uh, the life of artist Joe DeYoung who is the only protege uh, that Charlie Russell ever had. And uh, it's absolutely lovely. It is, uh, it's just, a, you know, it's a, it's a beautifully put together book, beautifully written book, lots of great photographs in it. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, from a, you know, in, in terms of the, the life of an artist and uh, the, the way that an artist's life corresponds to their art, uh, it's one of the better books on the subject that I've seen in a long time. Yeah. And then also we have uh, Dutch Girl, Audrey Hepburn and World War II uh, by Robert Matson, who previously wrote Jimmy Stewart and the Fight for Europe. And this is what he knows. He knows this particular uh, landscape very, very well. If, if you don't know the story of Audrey Hepburn during World War II, you really don't know anything about Audrey Hepburn. She's more than a movie star. It, it, she's, it's, I mean, she's, you know, Belge mm. uh, by birth. Well, it, you know, it, people always uh, talked about how uh, slight she was. Yeah. One of the reasons why she was so slight is because she almost starved to death. Yep. Um, uh, during that period, um, like a lot of other people, but yeah. And you know, I'm as I've mentioned before, I'm the I'm the son of a of World War II refugee. My mother was was a Prussian and uh, was a little girl when she fled the collapse of the Eastern Front. I heard a lot of those stories, and Audrey Hepburn lived through many of uh, the same kinds of things. You know, the uh, I, I'll tell you nothing here, but the uh, just know that what she went through in World War II made her who she turned into. She it made her. The, it gave her the stuff to become a star. It's a, it's a very, very impressive book. Uh, Dutch Girl, Audrey Hepburn and World War II. And then, Mark, what am I holding in my hands? White gloves. That's right, white yes. gloves. Do you know why I'm holding white gloves? Uh -oh. Because you hold Atashian books in, 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 in such revere. Yeah, such that's reverence. right. I don't touch Atashian book unless I'm wearing white gloves. <laughs> these are these are white gloves that I used when I uh, when I used to edit, uh, but now that editing is all uh, computer based, edited film actually, uh, film yeah. yes, so that you don't get your goopy fingerprints all over the film. So that's right. We're going to talk about four amazing Tashin books right now. These are from the archives collection. Now they previously released the uh, Ingmar Bergman archives, right, mm -hmm. which is fantastic, and the Kubrick archives, mm -hmm. which are fantastic. 
the James Bond archives. Now, these are giant books filled book. with artwork. This is so freaking beautiful. I can't even, I don't even know where to begin. I don't know. I can't stand it. It's just, it's, it's just so beautiful. Everything to do with James Bond. Anything that is James Bond is in these books. Uh, uh, is that a slip? Is, is that a slip cover? Uh, no. Hold on. Hold on. Hang on. Hang on. Well, it's because he can't use his fingernails. Oh, hold on. <laughs> hold on. Do I have a key? There you go. There we go. Oh, there no, 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 we're not. It's it's. Uh, hold on. Red hold on. and black. Okay, here we go. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. All right, now you guys, you're just gonna die here. You're gonna die at how beautiful this is. Uh, and a couple of Tashin books I also have that they did not send us, but which I have PDFs of, and I'm going to make mention of those too. But look at this. Look at this. Production boards. Yeah. Look at that. Old school strip, strip style production board. I used to make those after. Yeah. Look at this. Look at this. Look at all the behind the scenes stuff. Underwater photography. Look at that. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Look, George Lazenby and Diana Rigg. Oh, my oh. God. Oh. Diana Rigg. Oh. It, yeah. The artwork. Oh. If people ever asked you if James Bond was married, he was in one movie to Diana Rigg. Yeah. And the, one, the only go. one Look, lays to be played. Yeah. Uh, credit sequences, outtakes. It's hysterical. Look, you don't get a picture of Roger Moore bald, though. That's the one thing I was hoping for. There's no bald Roger Moore in here. So apparently he never uh, allowed them. But, I mean, everything has uh, – you get the you get uh, credit sequence uh, stills of everything. It's just the stunts. It's beautiful. This is amazing. Uh, you can relive every James Bond film. It's just gorgeous. Fantastic. Big, big book. Big book. We also have the Pedro Amadovar archives, which previously came out. This was uh, edited by Paul Duncan, who is the, the, big, the big cheese for, uh, for Tashin uh, in uh, the UK, and Barbara Pero. And uh, that is, uh, I would say, incomplete because we still have a lot of Pedro Almodovar to come. Mm. That's the one that does not have kind of an end. I mean, James Bond sort of, you know, yeah, we're going to keep getting more James Bond films as well. But in terms of the auteur stuff, that's the one that uh, really, uh, really has an end to it. Uh, does not yet have an end to it. And Charlie Chaplin archives. Oh! Right? Come on, white Love. glove it up. Be be tramp. Be a tramp with me. Yeah. Love. Come on, tramp it up. Uh, every conceivable thing that you could find from uh, Charlie Chaplin's can they career. Do uh, you want me to see if I can get one? Yes, please. Okay. Because mm. I'm a little itinerant right now, Wade. I don't have a place to live. And so then also the Walt Disney archives. Uh, I will put links to all of these on a Cine God's post. You will be able to find where to purchase them, and and I highly recommend it. the Walt Disney archives. You could probably. Here's the thing about the Disney archives: is I'm kind of amazed at the, um, at how they were able to distill it because you know that there's enough stuff for 50 volumes or 100 volumes of this. So how you distill the Disney stuff into just one is a little bit of a, a little bit of a, a thing. I don't know how the, how that decision making process went. Okay, you do that. He's a, on, yeah. he's a Hall of Fame. They're very expensive, by the way. Wade's yeah. hands are way bigger Hall than yours. And then we also have, these are the ones they sent me PDFs of, so I can, I can vouch for them only in terms of um, uh, what, you know, not the final copies, but the, the, the books themselves. Uh, but one of them is uh, very timely. It is Roy Thomas's The Stan Lee Story. Mm. Yeah. And yeah. Stan, that's who else we lost. Yeah, that's who else we lost to Stan Lee. It was just, my goodness. And uh, wow, this is really, really terrific. Uh, this is, you know, the, I mean, Stan Lee's, it's the most unusual career because he didn't create Marvel, but he came to be 
synonymous with Marvel. He was the guy that, you know, it's not like Walt Disney where this is entirely your baby. It was somebody else's baby, but he made the baby his own. He yeah. adopted it, right? Yeah. And uh, so much amazing artwork here uh, from all of these, you know, and it's from all the eras and all the different ages, and there's there are letters and really, really interesting stuff. It's just a wonderful, wonderful collection of uh, material and really well written as well. It's a wonderful tribute to Stan Lee. Very, very timely. I'm glad that this exists. And um, then the uh, Walt Disney's Mickey Mouse is Which the other one. I believe today is the 90th year anniversary yeah, of Walt creating Mickey. It oh, is. Steamboat, no, Willie, Steamboat, Steamboat anyway. Willie, anyway. Steamboat Willie, Willie which today, preceded Mickey. Because I work at the entertainment. Yeah. Today, we're recording this on a Sunday. Uh, it is the 90th anniversary of the premiere of Steamboat Willie. There you go. Anyway, so this is the uh, the complete history of Mickey Mouse, and uh, it's Walt Disney's Mickey Mouse, The Ultimate History from Tashin. And uh, wow, this is gorgeous as well. I mean, uh, you know, uh, again, how do you distill all of this uh, Disney material into one thing? And remember, Disney has their own publishing. So we've talked about a lot of Disney books. When Disney lets something go for Tashin, you you know that it's it's got to be super special. They've got to, you know, it, it's got to be worth their while. Now, by the way, at, at that Tashin party, I don't, I don't know if you saw this, but at that Tashin party, there was a copy of that Mickey Mouse one on the table. Oh, I didn't see that. By the window. Really? Yeah, when I arrived and nobody was there because I arrived super early. because I, uh. I didn't know how long it was going to take to get to the Hollywood Hills on Uber. Uh, I looked through that book. It looks great. Well, this gets into the toys, you know, the, the, the original Mickey Mouse toys. It's not just the animated stuff. It's everything about Mickey Mouse, the way that Mickey Mouse is ingratiated into the popular culture and, and uh, all that stuff. So really, really fantastic. This is just through the roof uh, amazing. And uh, can't get enough of this. So I uh, would love to get a hard copy of this one day, but uh, that's the one they sent to me on PDF. But you know what? Uh, any of these will be a gift to be treasured by any movie fan. Any movie fan, even yeah. if you, even if they're like two years old, get them started early. Give them, give them seriously. Give them the Pedro Almodovar archives. You know, that's what you give you, your toddler. One, toddler. Of the, one of the one of the things that you and I and Leonard talked about the other day was connecting to the whole film struck situation. Yeah. And uh, film education of people and getting younger people to be engaged in cinema, uh, older cinema. You know, not just the cinema of the last five years. Uh, these books can help with that. You know, uh, if, if, if we were to get you know, these, these books, particularly, you know, these books, big books full of pictures and story and narrative and behind the scenes, maybe that's the way uh, you, you draw younger people into the older films of the past. You, you introduce be. them to big, beautiful books like this. I, 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 th I think that's the way to do it. The library is always the, the thing that I go to first whenever I'm, you know, feeling like a, a movie urge. I go to the library, I read a book, and I, and, and eventually you, you wind up watching the movie. But uh, movie history is a wonderful thing, and all yeah. these books are great. All right, Tim, you got uh, you got something special there. Well, and I we got to tell you, I, I we got love... A, we got a giveaway with this. We got a giveaway associated with this, so go ahead. I love Bill Murray's uh, Scrooge. I love Scrooge. As far as, you know, these uh, things kind of go. This is one of the, this is one of the adaptations uh, of a Christmas-style uh, story, a Christmas uh, story. Yep. That, that I just couldn't help it. This movie was a big flop. I know. Didn't make a nickel. You know, it's, it's become a, a classic. It's a classic. It's hysterically funny. There's all mm -hmm. kinds of great stuff in this movie. Um, uh, here we've got it on Blu-ray uh, and DVD. Um, it's you know got a few few neat things on it, but not all that much. All I can say is this goes with uh, along with uh, what Quick Change, yeah, uh, and, and, uh, and and Groundhog's Day, yeah, uh, alongside all of those little yeah. Bill Murray moment movies. Yeah. Uh, this one can sit right along all all, all those uh, the, the first Ghostbusters. Uh, well, you know, we have two of these to give away, and not just two. 
but there are two that come with an anniversary Christmas tree ornament, a ah. blue Christmas tree ornament. Uh, so you or a green Christmas tree ornament. Sorry. So we're giving away two Scrooged Blu-rays along with two ornaments, and uh, that is courtesy of the good people at Paramount. Go ahead and send us an email to gods at digigods.com or gods at cinegods.com and just put Bill, mm. B-I-L-L, in the subject line, name and address in the body. And by November 30th, we will choose uh, two very lucky people. Here's another giveaway. The original Christmas specials collection on uh, Blu-ray, deluxe collection. Finally putting all this stuff together on Blu-ray. It hasn't been on Blu-ray before. We're giving away one of these. And this, of course, includes uh, Frosty and Rudolph and Santa Claus is Coming to Town, Little Drummer Boy, and The Cricket on the Hearth, the, uh, the original five. They are all Rankin-Bass productions. Uh, the, and, of course, Frosty and uh, Cricket on the Hearth are conventionally 2D animated. The rest are all uh, stop motion. And uh, they are con- they're just wonderful. My daughter has fallen in love with these just like I did when I was her age. And uh, it's just it's, uh, it's wonderful. We're giving away one of these. Just put specials. Specials with an S at the end in the uh, subject line, gods at digigods.com or gods at cinegods.com. And one very lucky person will get the deluxe edition of the original Christmas specials. Uh, five classic Rankin Bath shows. And you know what? I'm not even going to bother talking any further about them because, anymore about them because they're great. And then we are also giving away three Murdoch Mysteries Christmas Cases Limited Collection, a limited edition, sorry, from Acorn. Murdoch Mysteries, the Christmas Cases Limited Edition from ITV and Acorn TV. Uh, Murdoch Mysteries have uh, done a wonderful job with their holiday specials. There are three of them on here, and we've talked about this previously. And uh, this even contains a uh, collectible Christmas card. So it's a wonderful box set. It's packaged like a, like a gift, and uh, just put... Murdoch in the subject line, M-U-R-D-O-C-H, Murdoch, and that will uh, go for three people who will be eligible to win the uh, Murdoch Mysteries Christmas Cases Limited Edition. Love the Murdoch Mysteries, so much fun. Uh, Krampus, we've got Krampus here. Mark loves Krampus. Krampus. The origins of Krampus. Krampus, of course, is the Christmas demon. Uh, because you know every holiday has <laughs> every holiday needs a demon. Anyway, this one's a, uh, about a kid who has this wacky family and things are kind of going badly. He gets angry uh, and, and decides he just doesn't want to participate in Christmas anymore and turns his back on it. Of course, Krampus. What he does is he punishes non-believers. So he, this kid sort of inadvertently uh, summons up Krampus uh, to terrorize his family. Uh, Krampus is pretty ugly. Kind of looks like a uh, kind of looks like a skeleton reindeer is what he looks like. Uh, on this thing, and bonus features include uh, behind-the-scenes video and the filmmakers' audio commentary. Krampus from 2015. Gotta love it. Love Krampus. Uh, we've also got for kids Blaze Saves Christmas. This is from Nick Jr. Blaze and the Monster Machines, and uh, it's for little kids. But if you got little kids, we're giving away three of these: three Blaze and the Monster Machines Blaze Saves Christmas. Send us an email to godsdigigods.com or gods at cinegods.com with Blaze in the subject line. Three people will win this. Yeah, I mean, it's super, super young, but uh, it's fine. It's got four episodes on it, and uh, it's all very seasonal, and it's fun for kids. And we're also giving away three SpongeBob SquarePants holiday two-packs, also courtesy of the people at Nickelodeon and Paramount. So for that, just put Bob, B-O-B. Bob in the subject line, and uh, somebody very lucky will get those. And here's what else we're giving away. We're giving away one 
of uh, Benji's very own Christmas story uh, from Joe Camp, the director of the original Benji. This is just Benji. It's Benji, you know, like it's holiday Benji for crying out loud. Benji's a dog. What else do you need to know? Uh, there's, this is newly restored on Blu-ray. Just put Benji in the subject line, and one lucky person will get Benji's very own Christmas story. It's a dog movie. You'll go aw a whole lot. Mark's not going aw because Mark is totally engrossed in James Bond. Yeah. yeah. In the in the it's white. Amazing, in the, right? In the white well, gloves. Uh, I'll see what I can do. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All the creatures were stirring 2018. Another horrifying demon infested Christmas movie. <laughs> what the hell is going on with the demons in the Christmas you movie? You know, it's the de- it's like Christmas <laughs> slasher film too. Yeah, yeah, it's just kind of that. There was a good movie that one Black Christmas. There was that was Yeah, good. yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, uh what is it? Christmas Bloody Christmas or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. Uh this uh, this one uh, same kind of same same kind of thing. Special features includes uh the filmmakers commentary. All creatures, all the creatures were stirring. Snow Awesome. Let's uh, like play on So Awesome. This is all the uh, the Power Girls from Nick Jr., which includes Shimmer and Shine and Nella and Sunny, and they uh, got a whole bunch of fun episodes here that are all Christmas and holiday themed and winter themed. And these are includes two all new holiday specials. So that's also from Nick Jr. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the kids. Uh, Boone and Pat Boone and family. Seasons greetings. These are the Christmas and Thanksgiving specials. From uh, from Pat Boone, and this is a real vintage walk down memory lane yeah. on the TV back when they used to have these these uh, these, these specials in the fifties oh, and sixties. Andy 60s. Williams and oh everybody, Harry Como, yeah, everybody, Pat Boone, and this is fun. You get Bob Hope and the Hudson Brothers and Dinah Shore, and uh, it's it's and some surprise guests that you wouldn't expect from Hanna Barbera. Wink, wink. Yeah. Uh, Pat Boone and family is a it's a it's a wonderful collection of specials from fifties uh, and sixties for Thanksgiving and, and Pat Boone is still with us, dang it. Yeah, Pat Boone. That still guy does not go around. Not, just won't go away. I remember his his heavy metal album. Oh yeah, that was he the had a funniest moment. thing ever. He had a moment wearing leather. Uh, Lifetime makes ridiculous number of Christmas movies. Uh, a friend of ours has written a number of them, and uh, they just crank these things out. It's like nonstop Christmas romance and and all over the place. We've got two double features. One is wrapped up in Christmas with Tatiana Ali and Jasmine Guy and Kim Fields and Brendan Fair. Yeah. And uh, then we also have Snowed In Christmas with Bethany Joy Lenz, Andrew Walker, and Tasha Smith. That's a one double feature from Lifetime. The other Christmas double feature from Lifetime is A Very Merry Toy Store with Melissa Joan Hart and Mario Lopez. Aww. Yeah. Isn't that a cute couple? Sabrina and the the kid from Saved by the Bell. And then a bunch of people I never heard of in Four Christmases and a Wedding. Well, Judge Reinhold I used to have heard of, so he's in this. Uh, so anyway, those are, uh, those are, look, did we watch these? No. No. I, we just, li- two, life's too short and there was a fire. Yeah. Uh, I'm not gonna, <laughs> I'm not gonna sit here during an evacuation and just go, I think I can watch uh, some Lifetime Christmas specials. It's not gonna happen. But somebody Lopez out there, <laughs> Mario Lopez and <laughs> Melissa Joan Hart, that's the one I should have watched. Uh, but anyway, Mark, are you gonna, are you even gonna come back to reality? You are just, you are going I Bond know. nuts. Well, I'm, I'm making my way to the, uh, Daniel Craig. Oh my goodness. What, what do you think of Timothy Dalton? Yeah, Timothy Dalton was a good Bond. The the movies were not good. The the, um, the the narratives were not good. They couldn't figure out who to make the bad guy. So in License to Kill, uh, that was the early '80s, and and, and the Colombian Colombian drug dealers right. were, were were all the things. So you know they they suddenly the bad guy. And I'm like, when did when the hell did MI5? <laughs> when did they become concerned Seriously, with you know people, right? guys selling coke in Florida? Who the hell cares? And, and, and is, is there a better Bond song than Live and Let Die? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So we got we we've got some oh. uh, you know the 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 uh, oh the, wow the Mr. Wait, wait, I'll put it down. There we go. The Mr. Rogers documentary is probably going to win yeah. the Oscar, almost certainly. Oh man, my God, that That's movie is so just good. so wonderful. Okay, tell me, tell me that the last ten minutes of that film, the, the, the what he chose to wrap that thing up, he asked that final question. Mm. Tell yeah. me that you didn't cry. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I didn't cry. I, I wept. Yeah, I was gone. I was gone. He 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 is one of the few people, iconic figures in in, in the American culture, uh, who as it, apparently it turns out to be a who he seemed to be, right? He was who he seemed to be, um, as opposed to what we you know Harvey turned out to be, you know, uh, and and B the person that he seemed to be was really an extraordinary person. Uh, and 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 um, although you know, look, this guy, this guy was a you know fairly conservative uh, sort of Republican guy, uh, but not in but not in the context of what we think of no, when we talk was, about that today. He was also a minister. He was also a, a you know, I mean, there's, I won't get into any of it, but there are so many things about him that you don't know. Yeah. That made him who he was, and it's the it's the collection, it's the confluence of all that. Yeah. Uh, that really really makes that. What's, movie. what's the name? What's the name of the doc? Uh, won't you be my neighbor? Is the yeah. name of the doc. This this is Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood uh, from PBS. Mr. Rogers, it's like you. Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood uh, includes thirty classic episodes from 1979 to 2001, um, uh, which is sort of America. And then the other one uh, is just a wonderful um, uh, uh, collection of people talking about and to Mr. Rogers, Mr. Rogers, and thirty minutes of bonus video material. And what's just what's great about this is that folks can be as old as us or a little bit older, actually. And 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 have uh, thoughts and conversations and memories of Miss, Mr. Rogers and and that show only went off the air about 2001 or two or something like that. So yeah. we have some fairly young people who still have, you know, thoughts and ideas about Mr. Rogers. It's kind of wonderful. Kind of wonderful. Fantastic. Uh, so we've got a bunch of other regular movies to talk about too. I'm going to roll through here really quickly and make mention of the Criterion titles that we're recommending for uh, gift season. There are a bunch of them. And uh, these are kind of the cream of the year, the ones that aren't too obscure, they're more mainstream, they're classic, they're heartwarming, they have something going that uh, serious movie fans will love, especially with the demise of Filmstruck, about which we will have more to say soon. We'll also want to remind everybody, Criterion has announced that they are now doing their own streaming service, which will premiere next spring. Really so what should have happened instead of filming? Well, you, you know, this is very interesting, and we, we will save this for a future show, but uh, it, it's interesting that the Warner service is going to debut in late 2019, and the Criterion service is debuting in spring, basically to replace... That tells you how quickly Filmstruck was canned, that Criterion didn't see it coming, and it's going to take them a little bit of time to sort of transition everything and get back up and running with all the same stuff. But um, I've already become a charter subscriber. Have you? No, I've not. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Well. Anyway, so here's the uh, here's all the good Criterion stuff for the season. Everything here we have reviewed previously, except for this beautiful special edition of The Princess Bride, which brings to mind some other someone else that we recently lost, William Goldman. Yeah. 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 There's another one. Yeah. It's just it's been like the last two weeks. It's just been one death after another. Yeah. Right. It's been crazy. Uh, William Goldman, brilliant screenwriter. His last great triumph after, you know, kind of breaking through in the 60s and 70s and, you know, Butch and Sundance and all the presidents spent. Uh, the Princess Bride was really, it was based on a book of his and they've released a beautiful Criterion Blu-ray as a purple book. It just makes it look like a fairy book, and like a fairy tale book. And it's beautiful. This is from uh, 1987. 
They've done a wonderful job with it. Uh, this has been out on Blu-ray previously. Just take that Blu-ray and make it a coaster. This is everything you want. This has so many interviews and archival materials on it. Um, it's just it's extraordinary. This new interview, especially with the uh, art director, Richard Holland, that is so absolutely wonderful. It just gives you a whole new insight into how they put the movie together. Um, and uh, it, it just, it's just, it's absolutely wonderful. The other stuff, the other uh, really ace criterion stuff, the Dietrich and von Sternberg in Hollywood collection, which is everything that uh, Joseph von Sternberg and Marlena Dietrich did together in Hollywood, Shanghai Express, Morocco, The Scarlet Empress, The Devil is a Woman, all these great movies from the 1930s. Uh, just a legendary period, a beautiful box set. Uh, also, My Man Godfrey, one of the great all-time uh, screwball comedies. Just doesn't get much better than that. Also from the 1930s, 1936. Uh, for real art house fans, Ingmar Bergman's Scenes from a Marriage, which is tough stuff, but it's, it's kind of the all-time classic uh, art film. And it includes, includes the theatrical version and the uh, almost endless five-hour television version from uh, Swedish television that very few people have seen. By the way, there is the ultimate uh, Ingmar Bergman box set coming out, which we're going to try to dedicate a whole show to, actually. Uh, and that's uh, on its way. Don't have it in hand yet. Uh, then we also have Andrei Rublev, the Andrei Tarkovsky film, which includes uh, some wonder a wonderful, wonderful little bit from, by our good friend Justin Chang, who, uh, who participated in this. This is from 1966, the, uh, the quintessential Andrei Tarkovsky art film. Mm. And uh, Sidney Poitier in A Raisin in the Sun, uh, directed by Dan Petrie from uh, 1961, sort of the archetypal uh, 60s conscience film, and uh, the film that really, really put... Uh, it didn't put him on the map, but it made him a, a legendary star. It's the one that sort of said, this guy's going to be around a long time and, and has great things coming. Adaptation yeah. of Lorraine Hansberry, of course. Um, yes, uh, they, Sydney, Sydney had been in the play. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we, we lost Lorraine really young too. I think she was only thirty some odd years old when she when she died after yeah. that, after that great success. So you know, anyway, yeah. there, there's a thing. Twelve Monkeys, 19, 1995, Twelve Monkeys. Um, to my mind, look, this isn't the film that made Brad Pitt a star, but it's the film that uh, that, that made him serious actor. Oscar uh, nomination. Oscar nomination. This is the, this is the one where everybody said, "Oh, wait a minute, he's not just a pretty boy." He's also one of Terry, Terry Gilliam's last good films. Yes, true. You know, uh, before he before he ate, before he uh, drank the CGI Kool Aid. Um, uh, after that, uh, Terry stopped building things and started um, computerizing. You know, Mr. Imaginarium. Uh, yeah, forget all that. that That's lame. But this is Twelve Monkeys. This is fantastic. Christopher Marker's La Jate, of course, being mm -hmm. the source material, sort of base source material of it all. Uh, it's just one of the best time travel movies ever conceived and made. It, it almost actually makes sense. It's, con it's con right. It's confusing, but if you really sit with it, you realize it makes sense. And something else too. This thing was adapted by uh, by David Peoples, who also yeah. wrote Blade Runner mm. and uh, uh, what else? Uh, the, Unforgiven. The, the, yeah, the, yeah, the so Blade Runner, Unforgiven, and Twelve Monkeys. David Peoples pretty much is right up there with those three films. You know, he. I think Peoples also might have written uh, the Blade Runner sequel, but we won't uh, fault him for that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, look, it, it, those credits alone give you bragging rights. <laughs> they yeah. just do. You should uh, not even, have to pay for a drink no. at any Hollywood bar. No, no, never again. That's it. You're done at that point. Yeah. Uh, all, all kinds of stuff on this by the special edition kind, just more stuff. Your four K restoration, blah blah blah. I mean, you name it. Uh, if it has anything to do with Twelve Monkeys, um, 
I, I wonder if the if the old commentary and uh, in, in, in interviews and the and feature stuff from the old release on DVD are on here. I wonder oh, if that that's, stuff's on here. It, I, it, I, I hope that it is. I see. I don't know what the original had. So yeah, it had know. some really really great interviews, like the making of the movie, and, and, and uh, great stuff. If you, it was really, I used to teach that. Uh, if you want to see how our film was produced, the producers of well, they have, they have the hamster factor. All of that stuff is on that's here. On that's the, yeah. the one. Okay. Yeah. Right. yeah. 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 That's that's on it for sure. And uh, we have got uh, a couple of other things here. Let's see. Uh, William Castle Horror Collection is a is a nice little uh, introduction to William Horror. Five films: Thirteen Ghosts, uh, Thirteen Frightened Girls, Mister Sardonicus, Homicidal, and The Old Dark House. That is a uh, Mill Creek set. That is a wonderful, wonderful gift for somebody who just loves those kinds of movies and uh, you know doesn't mind having them on uh, on a Mill Creek DVD, which is a bargain DVD, but. You know they're they're old films and they they, they go to go, it's a nice court it's a nice quintet of films, uh, the thirteen part series from Chris Marker the Owl's Legacy, if you're a Chris Marker fan as long as we're talking about Twelve Monkeys mm. Chris Marker made of course La Jetée which is the inspiration the source material for Twelve Monkeys, um, really unusual French filmmaker and this is a masterpiece series that has not been seen in thirty years finally out on DVD from Icarus. And they've done a great job with it. This is uh, every single. I mean, it's it's it's. I don't want to say it's it's avant garde because it's not really avant garde, but it's it's just daring. And it is. Uh, it talks to all of these all these different figures and intellectuals and artists, and it talks to them about uh, how Greek culture influenced their art, their process, and, and it's, but it's done in such an interesting way, and it is, uh, it's just uniquely Chris Marker, and you have to check it out. The Owl's Legacy, a 13-part series. Really, really great stuff for anybody who's a, who's a Chris Marker fan. Mm, fantastic stuff. Joseph Campbell's, the, this is the 30th anniversary edition of the PBS series, uh, The Power of Myth, which was hosted by Bill Moyers, and, and, and Joseph Campbell was in it. Yep. Uh, look, uh, the mytholo- he's a mythologist, um, a linguist. Joseph Campbell basically sort of set the tone, the, the, the shape, for the sort of heroic journeys that um, uh, that heroes in films took by going out and doing all this research all around the world of the way uh, mythological stories have been created in Eastern culture and Western culture and all of this kind of stuff. And of course, um, started teaching this stuff in the 60s. He, he did this landmark series uh, in the late 80s. And I, and I have to tell you, you can tell what filmmakers of the, you know, the, the last mm-hmm. 30 odd years paid attention. Yeah. Uh, to this series because everything that he talks about, they've stuck in, uh, particularly American cinema, for you know the last thirty, even longer years. Sure. Everything that's in Star Wars, every, all of the different Star Wars, everything that's in any of those the, the movies that have a hero uh, in them comes from Joseph Campbell, and a lot of it came out of this series, including the Sound of Music. How's that for a segue? <laughs> uh, the uh, 60th anniversary of Sound of Music it can be celebrated with. The Sound of Music Live, uh, Roger Hammerstein's sound, sound of Music Live, which was... Uh, it was an re- ITV special. Sorry? It was an ITV special. Yes, it was an ITV special, and uh, it's quite lovely. I mean, I love the movie. The movie is, of course, uh, incomparable, but uh, this was in 2015. They did a great ITV special, and it was, uh, it was lovely, and it ha- it's, it's great in its, own, in its own right. And you should jef- definitely check it out. Kara uh, Toynton is fabulous in this. Does not displace Julie Andrews, doesn't rival Julie Andrews, but makes it her own, and it's uh, it's it's quite lovely. So uh, this was a great experiment, and it worked out beautifully. And that's on Blu-ray, and I uh, I would highly recommend that if you if you want uh, you know a nice alternative to the uh, the all-time traditional classic 1965 Oscar winner. 
And uh, oh, America oh, yeah. the Beautiful. Looks there like a little, uh, little uh, a little documentary here. Uh, 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 the complete National Parks collection, America the Beautiful, ten part series uh, with a bonus documentary on it. Basically, it takes you all around uh, a tour of all of the wonderful. Uh, American National Parks, uh, Death Valley, Yosemite, Yellowstone, you name it. This, this, uh, this, the, these filmmakers go to it, film it beautifully, beautifully shot, looks great on uh, digital and Blu-ray. They talk a little bit about the history and how these, uh, the, these particular monuments were established and who established them. It's really interesting stuff. You know, this is America. You know, I've not, I've not been to as many of these as, 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 as I wish that I had. I've, in, for, in fact, I've never been to Yosemite. Uh, been to the Grand Canyon, of course. Been to Yellowstone. Been to Death Valley. But you know, never been you to know, Yosemite. Uh, you know what we're gonna do, Tim? You're mm-hmm. gonna you're gonna come to Yosemite when uh, my daughter graduates fifth grade. That's what <laughs> the kids at the elementary school do. That's what the PTA does. It sends them all to Yosemite. I've that's never been. Thing. I've never been either. Ah, oh, that's fun. So, so, we gotta go so to Yosemite. You, you, Mark, you wanna go? Are you in? I've been to Yosemite. You, okay, then you, you guys can be chaperones. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if the schools. Look, you, I'll, I'll I'll figure out a way. I'll That'd, make be it That'd be fantastic. That'd be fantastic. Yeah. Uh, great. 13 the, hours. Great stuff. The PTA will pay. I hear they pay for everything. As long as I'm not paying. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll see. Uh, so anyway, going to roll through some anime right now. We've got ourselves another giveaway. We are giving away uh, three copies of the uh, amazing anime classic Metropolis. Now, uh, Metropolis has a fascinating history, which we won't entirely get into. Of course, it is it is connected to the Fritz Long Metropolis, but it, by way of uh, extraordinary anime, uh, it, it's its own film. It's not, you know, a, a perfect imitation. It, it, it kind of takes it, makes it its own. Uh, this is a brand new Blu-ray release. It is fantastic. It is from Mill Creek. It is beautifully packaged. We're giving away three of them. So just uh, put Metropolis, straight up Metropolis, in the uh, subject line of the email and send it to godsatsindigods.com or godsatdigigods.com. Get it to us by November 30th, and three people will be very happily immersed in the world of Metropolis by the great Japanese animation uh, master Osamu Tezuka. And uh, I'd have to, I don't know what he's done lately. Mm, yeah. you know, it's been a while, but... Anyway, uh, so let's just roll through a few more things that are, uh, that are worth mentioning here. Junie Tyson's Zodiac War, this is from Funimation, comes with their own digital copy. I kind of wish that they didn't have their own Funimation digital copy. It would be nice if Funimation joined movies anywhere, uh, but uh, they aren't, uh, not for the time being. So you have their own, they have their own digital copy thing going. Uh, but anyway, the uh, so you have that, and so Junie Tyson's the uh, Zodiac War, which uh, is, has which is you know cyberpunk and war stuff. Uh, we have Jin Thomas series three part two. Uh, if you've been following that, that's also a really really cool series, very guy oriented, skewing super young is pop team epic. I I want to see the look on Mark's face when I show him this. <laughs> they, they, they look like marshmallows. This is this skews even younger than uh, Hello Kitty. Uh, this is pretty. This is it, this is kind of like um, ew, South Park anime. Is that maybe a good way to put it? Uh, there, it, it, it's cute, but it's kind of nasty at the same time, and it's very very strange. It's based on a web comic, and it is it's one of the few times where I've seen Japanese uh, animation use a kind of humor, a sense of humor that we actually can access. Because normally Japanese humor is not culturally accessible outside of Japan. It makes yeah. a difficult transition. Uh, but in this case, uh, not this, not so. 
Uh, we've also got Brave Witches, the complete series, which is uh, 13 episodes in uh, what is actually a really, really fun show. Uh, it, it, uh, you'll, you'll, you'll enjoy it. Um, I want to go through this as quickly as possible. Let's see. Uh, Free, Take Your Marks. This is the um, sequel movie to the original series, which I actually think is better than the series, but it's still it's very, it's very much an acquired taste. Um, uh, Dagashikashi. Uh, series two, this is um, precisely that sense of humor that I don't particularly get, but, you know, mm. I don't need to. Uh, let's see, The Testament of Sister New Devil, season two, Burst. That's uh, more schoolgirl antics and supernatural. I don't know the, what the, it is. The titles are just... I don't know yeah. what it is about them that they, they... I don't know, I don't get it. Um, and then, let's see, two more here that fit the bill. Uh, we've got uh, Dragon Ball Super Part 5 for Dragon Ball fans. And uh, no, that's not the one. Um, here we go. And then uh, High Speed Free Starting Days, also part of the, uh, the, free, the free universe. When this is the prequel movie. So mm. we're bookending the free universe with the, with the two films. Um, just about does it, guys. That's it. I think that's about it. So, uh, are we doing an interview? We are. We're wrapping the show out with the with an interview with a television showrunner. And Tim, you well, this is the interview that I was supposed to be a part of at the beginning, <laughs> but Mark delayed me at the saucer house party with uh, Mr. Tashin. Yeah, it's all your fault. I know. Uh, it was. It was actually. You know whose fault it actually was. It was what. Well, no, 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 it was, no, no, it was, well, first of all, they started the thing late, but second of all, it's because Al Pacino and Michael Mann were having a conversation right in front of the door, and I couldn't get past them, and how, why would I want to interrupt that conversation anyway? Because I've seen Heat, I know what those guys can do. Yeah. They could be talking about Heat too, Electric Boogaloo. Oh, that would be so <laughs> awesome, wouldn't that be great, the Heat sequel? Anyway, no, but, but the, uh, anyway, the, uh, the, so I come in late on this interview, but Tim, uh, Tim started the interview with LaToya Morgan. Mm-hmm, LaToya is a showrunner, showrunner, writer, extraordinary, young a uh, young woman, young black woman, um, who has two shows upcoming. Um, she's um, she was one of the showrunners and writers uh, on the series uh, Into the Badland yes. uh, that our very good friend Sherman, Sherman Augustus is a star on. But she was also one of the top writers on on uh, on Turn, Turn and Washington uh, Spies. And, uh, Washington Spies, and, uh, yeah. and she's she's running a few shows. She's just made. Uh, a, a little film called Team Maryland, a little political film that will be yeah. out sometime next year. Sherman happens to be in that as well. Uh, and uh, Latoya, we're just a big fan. Uh, Latoya is a showrunner, and, and we thought it would be nice to have her on the show to, to A, explain what the hell that means, uh, what a showrunner is. In film, we know that the, uh, the central figure is the director, uh, occasionally the auteur, director, writer. Uh, in television, the central figure is a person called the showrunner, um, who is usually a writer, very often not a director, mm-hmm. almost always a producer, but more than a producer. A showrunner, I think the title speaks for itself. Mark, having been one, you know, explain a little bit. Well, I've been a showrunner not in the scripted world. But in the scripted world, the showrunner is a little bit like the director in a film, like you're kind of like what you're saying, whereas the showrunner is the one who not only created the show, right, but has every single piece of that show in their head. They know the characters. They know the arc of the entire season. They're the ones who who uh, they uh, they're the ones who make sure that the vision of the show is maintained. Yeah. They're the ones who and coherent. They're the ones who run the writers' room. 
to make sure that the episodes are, are, are delivered on time and that they're good. They sometimes direct the episodes, sometimes not. Uh, so the showrunner is the one, is the most important person. It is their, they are really the vision of the show. Not, not only are they the overall vision of the show creatively in terms of what you see, but also they're, they're the ones who run the nuts and bolts of the writer's room and making sure that the shows are done on time, on budget, and that they're good. There you go. So uh, Latoya Morgan is a top one. That's she one. Yeah. she has a deal with AMC. She's uh, she's really really uh, coming on strong, and uh, we really thought it would be a great idea to to kind of get inside her world and let her tell us all about how it works. So, uh, without further ado, we're gonna we're gonna go out on this, and we wish you all the very best these holidays. Uh, we will be back after our LAFCA voting. We vote on the 9th, so at some point after that, we will uh, get together again and uh, and uh, give you give you another uh, a show, another show. But until then, we are uh, we're on hiatus, and uh, we're going to go out now with our interview with Latoya Morgan. Yeah, I'm here with Latoya Morgan, uh, showrunner, writer uh, extraordinaire. Uh, uh, introduced to me uh, by our mutual friend Sherman Augustus, the great Sherman Augustus. You do usually have to say that, yes, right before you say Sherman Augustus, who of course plays Nathaniel Moon uh, on Into the Badlands. Yes. Now, Into the Badlands was a show that you uh, wrote for previously, and I noticed that you didn't create Sherman's character, but Sherman says you're the one who brought his character to life. That made his character become the extremely popular <laughs> character that it is right now. Sherman says, you know, praise be to Latoya for that. So, oh, he's so sweet. Talk a little bit about that. Sure, sure. Um, I, I can't take full credit for that. Um, the show was created by Al Goff and Miles Miller, mm. who um, I didn't come into the show until season two. And season two just happens to be when Sherman's character was introduced. And how the writer's room works is we talk a lot about the different characters. We talk a lot about the story arc of where we want to see certain characters to go. And we knew that we wanted the character of Sonny, who's our lead, mm. to Dan meet Daniel Wu. Daniel Wu to meet this clipper or uh, assassin who was even more prolific than he was. Mm. Now, Sonny is known as the baddest clipper in the lands, and if he could meet someone who was bigger and badder than him, oh my God, what would that fight look like? And so that was the scaffolding that we used to sort of start talking about the character of Nathaniel Moon. And we talk a lot about um, spaghetti westerns. Obviously, we talk about martial arts films on the show. But uh, we thought that if they could have this really great meeting where at first uh, Sonny's character isn't sure uh, that Sherman's character, Moon, is, yeah. is, a, is a clipper. And then he finds that out through a fight sequence. And then they sort of have this heart to heart and then they have a big fight at the end. We thought that would be a wonderful way to intro that character. Yeah. And, 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 and it is absolutely fantastic yeah. uh, with all those tattoos and everything like yeah, that. Yeah. All his kills. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was great. And Sherman like killed the role. I mean, he in season two only had one episode and he was so great that we had to bring him back for season three. Yeah, and, and, and which was fantastic. We're getting ready uh, in, well, we, we, I think we're doing this in early November. Yep. Uh, so I think that in February, if I'm not mistaken, the rest of the season uh, will, 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 will air on AMC. Yeah, end of January, yes. End of January, okay, mm -hmm. uh, which is fantastic. Let, let's go back, let's go earlier. Yep. We're, waiting, we're waiting for our co-host Wade Major to show up. Uh, Wade had a few things to do. Wade has a five-year-old. 
Oh, keep you busy, yeah. those five-year-olds. So things happen. <laughs> yeah, five-year-olds. So, yeah, but he'll be here soon. Our audience is very familiar with Wade and all those kids. Sherman might be coming, be coming by, too. He, he should. He, he was better. supposed to be here. He was supposed to be here. <laughs> but that's okay. If he doesn't know, we'll, we'll just do something else. Um, let's go back. Yep. Let's go back to when you first uh, decided that you wanted to be a, a, a writer mm-hmm. in, in television and film. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and just walk, walk us through that. When, when did this all begin for you, Latoya? Wow. Well, I've always been a writer since I was a little kid, and I was obsessed with a couple of things. One was Stephen King books, uh, <laughs> and I would go into my, I would read all his books, and I loved his short story collections the most. No, no, no disrespect to his novels, which are phenomenal, but I was a big fan of of his short fiction. And I w- every time I would get to the scary parts, I would go and sit in the room with my brother so that I would have someone next to me while I was reading the scary parts of the, of the books. And so I love that feeling of being on the edge of your seat, that suspense. So that was one of the big catalysts for me. And then uh, as far as television, one of the shows growing up that I would watch all the time, aside from like the usuals, like, you know, Cosby Show, Different Worlds, um, Married with Children, Melrose Place, all that stuff. Every uh, weekend, I mean, every uh, uh, 4th of July, they would have the Twilight Zone Marathon. Oh, yes. And so that really stayed with me. I just remember, like, the smell of barbecue and, like, the theme song from the Twilight Zone being a real part of my uh, growing up. Rod Serling's writing, of course, was extremely sophisticated. Oh, yes. And, and, And education in and of itself. Uh, in, into psychology and yeah. philosophy and, 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 and so many things. So uh, sort of be shaped by that and some of the other great writers who came through that show. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, that's... that's yeah, that's Richard cool. Matheson. Oh, yeah, it's fantastic. So many, yeah. Uh, stuff, so that. You know, there's people who are uh, Twilight Zone people and then yeah. there, there are people who are Outer Limits people. Oh, yeah, I'm a Twilight Zone kid. But I'm a Twilight say. Zone person. Yeah, I mean, like, the stories were so great. What it taught me was how to mask issues um, in genre, basically. Mm. And so uh, there was there's certain episodes of the series that I have never forgotten. That that one with the doll, mm. like, <laughs> talking Tina. I hate dolls to this day <laughs> because of that episode. I mean, there's, you know, so many great uh, To Serve Man. I, I can name, rattle off a million, but... They were really wonderful at putting social issues, which are very close to my heart, into bite-sized pieces that people could digest. So, so Stephen King, The Twilight Zone, yeah. uh, popular entertainment. My wife is a gigantic fan of, fan of uh, uh, Stephen King. Yeah, I, I bought her every hardback copy. Oh, you're a good every husband. Stephen <laughs> I King love that novel from when we were in high school. Gotta, I, I still have them all. You gotta have the hardbacks. Yeah, have them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it, 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 uh, the, the Twilight Zone, popular entertainment. Yeah, uh, it's what drove you when you were reading that stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you envision yourself writing it uh, in the medium, uh, uh, you know, novels or, or, or for television or film? I really did. Um, I was also a nerdy kid who really liked um, Turner Classic Movies, oh, yeah. and so at the end of the credits, um, I would see you know written by you know Billy Wilder, you know directed by Billy Wilder. And I was like, wow, I love these stories. I, I wonder if I could do that. I want to write these types of stories. Um, and so I always envisioned myself mostly as a feature writer at first. Uh, so I went to film school at AFI and uh, spent two years there learning from some of the best writers in the business. You know, people who have been nominated for Academy Awards, giving me notes on my scripts, which was great. And then uh, we added a television uh 
part of the curriculum where people who had worked in writers' rooms from Battlestar Galactica to Cheers to so many wonderful shows would come in and talk to us about working in a writers' room. And I said, oh, that's it. That's what I wanted to do. I love the idea of uh, working with other people as a community to tell a story. Ah, ah. Um, it, it, it's obvious to people listening to you that you're a woman. Might yeah. not, <laughs> might, might not be that obvious that you're a black woman. <laughs> I am that too. An African American. Yes. Woman. So, so uh, talk a little bit about that um, uh, during the period that you were doing these things. Um, you know, Shonda Rhimes. I don't suppose had happened yet. Yeah. Had she happened already? Oh yeah, Grey's Anatomy so, was huge. So there was a uh, you, you, there, there's a path that you could see sure. specifically for you. Yeah, yeah, and Shonda Rhimes. I always uh, used her as one of the people whose career I wanted to emulate. So it was her, and I really loved uh, John Wells and all the great television shows that he created. And so I would always say... ER. Yeah, ER and West Wing. And uh, I would always say I wanted to be like the the love child of Shonda (laughs) Rhimes and John Wells. And um, so... Yeah, her career was something that I really admired and looked towards. And I knew that, uh, obviously, I'm I'm a drama writer, and I really love drama and character pieces. So I tried to figure out a way to get into that. And so uh, it was really great when my first job was on Shameless on Showtime. Oh, Shameless. Uh, One of my favorite shows. Yeah. (laughs) So sassy. So sassy. Very funny. Uh, Also very dramatic, which is great. Yeah, and uh, a disordinary sort of show yeah. that requires disordinary writing, uh, yeah. the, the, the sort of writing that I call disordinary. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk a little bit about that. You know, um, writing for a show like Shameless means that this, the ordinary things that a writer would do, the sort of plot points that they were hit, th- that doesn't happen on that show. <laughs> right. How, how does it come about that you guys get so off the beaten path? Right from right from the you know uh, the invention of the characters. That, you know, those aren't ordinary characters. Yeah, um, well, we had a template to work off of because Shameless is based on a BBC show. Uh, and so the they had, I think, three or four seasons that were already in the can. And when we when they started to make the, origin, the American version, um, we sh- sort of used the first season of the BBC series as the template. Mm-hmm. And then, f- so we had our foundation. And then from there in season two, when I joined the show, uh, we just went off the reservation. <laughs> we just started making up stuff and throwing out ideas. And the writer's room was really great because there was nothing that was off limits. I mean, the show is called Shameless. So (laughs) you could really pitch any idea and we could figure out a way to make that into a story. And so it was really a a great egalitarian room, uh, the way John Wells ran the room, which was he wanted everybody to participate, everyone to feel like they had some skin in the game. And then there were no limits to what you could throw out there. So it was a great marriage of wonderful uh, story ideas and then great people to work with. How did that job come about? That's your first job. Yep, that was my very first job. And I got that job because I did a fellowship called the Warner Brothers Television Writing Workshop. And that is sort of like a writer's room kind of training program. And... Uh, from there, I ended up getting my first job on Shameless. Outstanding. Yeah. Um, uh, what, what what was it like? What was uh, how was that room built? Uh, that writing room, uh, women, uh, men, people of color. Uh, what year is this? Uh, this was 2012. So yeah. that was my first gig. Um, and there were three women, three guys, only one black person. That was me. <laughs> and I ch- <laughs> yeah. I, ch- I check a couple of boxes. And uh, I was the youngest writer in the room. So um, everyone had like 20 years experience on me. So that was very nerve wracking. Um, but there were the other split in the room was that half of the writers were drama writers. I was one of the drama writers. 
and the other half were comedy writers. And so it was just a really interesting way to build a room where the show has, you know, as part of its DNA is that it's really, really funny. And so you have these writers who are so experienced just throwing out joke after joke after joke. Um, I was like, I can't do that. <laughs> like, I can write down my joke and come and pitch it later, but I don't have that, like, you know, that lizard brain where I could just come up with it off the top of my head. So it was interesting to to marry those two pieces and then have such a great outcome from it. That's an interesting notion there that I don't, I don't think that I was aware of that in television, I guess in television, uh, there are drama writers and yeah. comedy writers. I mean, I know that there are people who write dramas and there are people who write comedy, yeah. but I didn't know that it was sort of defined so distinctly like that in the hiring process. Yeah, and it, it's because the way those rooms are uh, run are very different. So Shameless is an anomaly in that it is a drama D. So you require both drama and uh, comedy writers. But a traditional half-hour comedy room runs very differently. They tend to have uh, more writers. So you're looking at like 15 writers sometimes for something like Two and a Half Men or you know, some one of the big network comedies. And We're in real joke machines. Yes, where people are there. That's some of their job every day is just to pitch jokes. Forget the story, forget that. It's just joke, 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 joke. So um, that's a different type of muscle than what you do in um, a drama room, which is mostly about character, a lot of structure. Um, but sometimes you run into a show like Shameless where the two meet. Mm, outstanding. Uh, from Shameless, where did you go? I worked on a show after that called Parenthood, um, which was wonderful. Uh, uh, Robert, uh, Robert Townsend's uh, show? Uh, this is Jason Kadem's show. Oh, on it was based on the film with, by, with Ron Howard um, about this uh, family. And Steve Martin. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Wait, Steve Martin's in that? No, no, no. Um, Ron Howard. Um, oh my God, I'm blanking on everyone's names. Uh, 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 I, re I think I remember that. Diane Weist. Oh, is yeah, in it's it. okay. okay. Um, but it's a really great uh, drama, and Jason Kadem took it and. Turned it into a television show. Wait, Steve Martin is in it. You're right. Yeah. Oh my oh, God. I wait. Wait. Yeah. You're right. You're totally yeah. right. Yes. Because he he was the dad. I haven't seen the movie in forever. Well, clearly. yeah. That 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 goes back <laughs> away. Yeah. That movie yeah. was like yeah. Uh, but yeah. So uh, and then Peter Krause plays the 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 father in this version in the television version. Yeah. And so that was fun. It was a different kind of family show. So I worked on that for a year, and then after that. I jumped over to AMC and worked on uh, a show called Turn, Washington Spies, which is about spies during the Revolutionary War. Yeah, big drama. Yeah, uh, huge. Uh, that, that show, sure. So, but, but a certain amount of uh, you know, espionage and, yeah. and sort of action-y sort of stuff, too. Yeah, and historical, of yeah. course. Uh, and, uh, and then? And then uh, uh, halfway through working on Turn, uh, they asked me if I would jump over and help out on Into the Badlands. And so for the last two years, I've also been working on that. Which brings us back around full circle to where we started. Yep. Uh, uh, coming in there and, and, and doing what you did with Sherman's Nathaniel Moon, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, thus making him the big old television star <laughs> that he is today. <laughs> he now, is. Now, now, you and Sherman, um, um, you're working on a few things uh, for television, for AMC. Yes. Uh, but you're also working on a, a, a little movie. How much do you want to talk about your movie? Uh, uh, I can talk a little bit about it, uh, uh, sure. Team Maryland, and 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 so so uh, between uh, the television work that you're doing, this this film happens. 
Um, where did the idea for the film come about, and, and how does the film fit into the whole overall overture of what you're doing? It's called Team Marilyn. It's called Team Marilyn, and it's a small little character piece, as I am want to do. <laughs> and it follows uh, a woman and a man. They're a married couple, and they're uh, on the campaign trail for the 2020 election. And their uh, political uh, what ambitions mm. are sort of uh, put to the test when a secret uh, comes out, is about to come out about their relationship that could derail uh, a bid for the presidency. Mm. And so um, I'm a big fan of films like uh, The Ides of March and The Contender. Uh, I have a political background. I used to be a community organizer, and so I worked in those political circles. Mm. So um, I've always been fascinated by those stories, but th often th those stories are not told from a uh, black perspective, and mm. so I wanted to tell that type of story with a little more black on it, uh, or, or, or a female perspective for <laughs> yes, that matter. Absolutely, right? in, in, yeah. in both instances, yeah. uh, you have that sort of that 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 thing. Uh, a political movie, a movie set in the world of politics, yeah. uh, you know, in today's politics, yeah. which are perfectly insane. Yeah. Um, <laughs> how how do you how do you how do you look out of the world of politics as they exist today and and make a movie set in the world of politics and and, and feel like that you know I mean even movies uh, not movies television show like House of Cards. Sure. You know which I, I love. Yeah. How do you you know what do you do? How do you decide where you want to live and still stay in reality? Yeah, I think for me the key was uh, after the 2016 election, um, I was devastated as most people were. And it got me thinking immediately about 2020 and who could help save the world. And so, of course, I thought of black women because 94% of black women voted to save the world. Yeah. And so uh, those numbers don't lie. And, and so I really started thinking about what type of person could run that could um, save the day. But then I also started thinking about just the balance of um, media coverage and who gets to be a flawed candidate and what does that mean. And so it really put me on the trail of thinking about this story of you know flawed candidates and does the perfect have to be the enemy of the good? Mm. And, uh, and so I was thinking of this piece as sort of um, architecture for a larger uh, feature piece. Um, and so the short will almost serve as, I don't know if you remember Whiplash a few oh years yeah. ago, they did a short film version of that. Oh yeah, um, and then Damien Chazelle's it, Yeah, Damien Chazelle's uh, script, and then later on they built it into a feature. Mm. And so I was sort of using that as the model. Yeah, oh, yeah. outstanding, beautiful stuff. Sherman uh, happens to be yeah, yeah, the yes. princi principal character in it. Sherman is the very devilish and very handsome uh, husband character in this, and it's very funny when I sent him the script and I asked him to come to my house uh, to do like a table read for me just to work the material uh, because this is my first time directing. And mm. so I was very excited about that and also very nervous. And I trust Sherman because he's such a great actor, but he's also just such a, a roll with the punches type of person. And so we were sitting around my, my kitchen table going through the table read and he, there's some twists and turns in this story that you don't expect. And literally when he got to the end of the script, he fell onto the floor. <laughs> he <laughs> fell onto the floor because he was like, oh my God. I, I've, I've read the script, so I know why he hit the floor. 
<laughs> so uh so yeah it was uh it was great to have that reaction and just to have his you know a thousand percent commitment oh, and yeah. his trust in me to to do this and so that that really gave me heart you know you got that you know you got that moment right yeah <laughs> <laughs> you nailed that moment. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, yeah. So I, that's the way that I like to write, though. I like, um, I just love character pieces, of course, but I like digging into the psyche of people and what makes them tick, what drives them to make certain decisions, even when they're mistakes, because mm. I think people, you reveal a lot when people make mistakes or they fail. Mm. Uh, well, which is, uh, I suppose, a part of your sort of fundamental writing philosophy. Yeah. Um, uh, as you look out at the media world today, there's so much uh, space, I suppose you might say, the Netflixes and the Amazon yeah. Primes and all, all, all the Hulus and all this kind of stuff. Do you think that there is therefore that much more room uh, for perspectives, uh, ideas, opportunity? I do. And um, I'm very hopeful that, especially with the climate that we have now, where people are more actively looking to give people opportunities, that more will pop up. I know for me, one of the things that I'm all, always preaching about, I, I'm on a couple of committees at the Writers Guild, um, and I do you know, mentorship on, on my own where I'm trying to get more new voices through the door uh, because I think people have this misconception that they think that, you know, oh my God, like, how can we find, where are all the black people? Where are the women? Where are they hiding? And I'm like, they're not hiding. They're right here. I can introduce you to a hundred of them right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There has for years been this thing of where, um, well, you know, we're going to set up a program, we're going to do a thing, and we're going to see if we can... Oh, you know, yeah, we don't know, this, the program is not necessary. The sister right over there can yeah. write her ass off. Yes. Sister standing next to her is a hell of a DP. Yes. Uh, just hire them. It, yeah. That's yeah, and, and that was what I, the principle that I wanted to apply for this film. So um, my producer uh, is a woman. Obviously, I'm a woman. Uh, my DP is also a Filipino woman. So I wanted to really populate uh, the, the crew and I really wanted to populate the crew with some really fantastic and talented women uh, in positions of power. It's, a, it's, a, it's sort of an amazing thing. Uh, let, let me take you over to Black Panther, the movie Black Panther, right? Love that movie. This is a fantastic movie. I'm watching this movie, and uh, I, you know, I wrote a whole essay about it. And uh, it, one of the things I like, Black Panther as a character and all, that's all fine. You know, uh, T'Challa uh, and all mm -hmm. that. It's all great. Read the comic book. But I'm watching this movie, and I'm realizing that it's the women in this movie particularly these black women, yeah, his sister and his, his defenders and his mama, everybody, they are just saving this brother left and right. <laughs> yes. I mean, this brother, and it's just, you know, I'm watching this movie, I'm like, I'm wondering if everybody gets, grab that, Wade Major just walked in, grab that microphone, turn it on, put on, those, put on those headphones, show us Wade Major, Latoya Morgan. Hi, nice to meet you. Uh, Wade Major, Latoya listens to Film Week all the time, so it's not like she's not going <laughs> to... You are notorious. It's not like she's going to know, it's not like she's not going to know you. Turn that microphone on. I just want to say it's Al Pacino's fault. Well, what did Pacino do? What did no. Pacino do? <laughs> just seems like the right person to blame. Uh, no, I was just, I was just, I was just at a press event for uh, at Eternity's Gate, the new Julian Schnabel film with Willem Dafoe playing Van Gogh. Now, as Tim knows, I'm sure as you know too, La Latoya, these press events, you, you usually walk in, you have some hors d'oeuvres, you talk, you hang out as long as you want, and then you leave. No, not at this one. This was at the Saucer House. You know about the Saucer House? No. Built in the 1960s. It's like an architectural legend here in L.A. It's in, the, in, in, the, in Bel Air. And it's owned by Benedict Taschen of Taschen Books. Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, yeah. so you go, you get out of your car, they valet your car, 
there's a there's a van that takes you up the road to the funicular. Then you wait in line at the funicular, which takes you to the top of the saucer house. And then there was an event where Guillermo del Toro was interviewing Willem Dafoe and Julian Schnabel, and uh, and Al Pacino was there, and he was late, and they started late. <laughs> Back and, to Pacino. And uh, you know, anyway, it was a thing, and I was trapped on the other side of the thing, and I was like, I can't, I can't get up and interrupt this thing. I can't, I can't be the guy that just goes, excuse me, and just like <laughs> blows the thing. So I had to wait, and then I had to wait for the funicular, and anyway, so and Mark Kaiser was there. I didn't even know he was going to oh, be there. Mark Farmer, uh, not Farmer, but you know, the guy <laughs> yes. that used to do the show. Yeah. Mark. So anyway, That's a good excuse. Yeah. So, but I bailed on those people as fast as I could to come here. I we, love it. We've been having a, lo- a nice long chat. We've Good. Been to- we've, we've been talking. We've talked about her entire career, actually, uh, and, and and the little movie that she just made with Sherman. Uh, and we were just starting to talk about Black Panther. Yeah. And the way, way that movie was constructed, uh, particularly with these women, these black women, and you know Ryan Coogler, young man, who you can tell from watching that movie loves his mama. Yeah. Uh, and 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 understands something very specific about the dynamic uh, between you know women and uh, particularly black women and their sons. Uh, did that movie particularly hit you in that way? Yeah, I think the strongest uh, part of that film is the female roles. I mean, obviously, Black Panther is, it's called Black Panther, but everything from, you know, Angela Bassett being his mom, uh, the Dora Milaget, like all of that, like such strong women who care not only about him and themselves, but about the world. Mm. And I feel like that's something that, you know, resonates with black women in the real world as well. And, and women in general. Wade and I talked about it with Charlize Theron's uh, uh, Road Warrior movie. Yeah. Uh, which, again, you, yeah, I don't know if you did. But that, that you one. mean when she played Furiosa? Yeah. 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 And you watch yeah. this movie, and the movie's called Mad Max. Yeah. <laughs> but the movie ain't movie. about Mad Max. It's really not, yeah. This, yeah. Is, this, is, this movie is about this chick. Yeah. About right. and, and I love it. I love it. And, and Wade's a big fan of that. Y- you know, I, the, here's what I wanted to ask you about. Because it used to be, I mean, look, everything in the world used to be the male world. It's only within the past century that we're getting, you know, outside of that. And the, it used to be, you know, the, the the Joan of Arcs and the Madame Curies and the 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 Jane Austens were the exception to the rule. And it, television, in particular, was a boy's place right. for from day one, straight on through until maybe 10, 15 years ago. Uh, people like Shonda started kind of cracking that down. And uh, you know, a good good friend of mine from from film school, Natalie Chides, is was recently showrunner. She's been on a number of shows, and she was just on on um, Queen of the South. Queen right? of the South, yeah. yeah. And and uh, you know, now it just seems like women are finally getting their shot. A lot of women directing Game of Thrones, you know, a re- a sword and and dragons kind of guy thing but but, but but a show that that is invested in its female characters and yeah. and, 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 and and enfranchise all those women and oh, then yeah. and and you know i just got done watching season three of daredevil and like half those episodes are directed by women and they are tough and they're violent and i'm thinking okay so something has happened something's really broken through especially where women in action are concerned can you talk about that what's 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 happened well people started to finally get the memo. <laughs> like yeah. Women are a, a, a resource, and there shouldn't have been limitations to what they're asked to do in the first place. And so I know uh, on, on our show, on Into the Badlands, uh, the most exciting characters for me are the women. So you have the widow, you have Lydia, who's like this matriarch character. You have young Tilda, who's this badass fighter. Like, we give them stuff to do on purpose. And those are conversations that we have every day in the writer's room 
where we don't want our female characters to just be window dressing. We want them to get in there, get down and dirty, fight, uh, because that's exciting and it's interesting. And I think that uh, across the board on different shows, even I just started watching a new season of House of Cards and Robin Wright finally getting a chance to truly shine. Uh, hopefully, this is not a spoiler, but as president. Um, oh, yeah, yeah that's, in, that's in all the ads. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that she's she's coming to her own. It's her turn, right, yeah. as the ads say. And so I think, uh, yeah, people woke up and smelled the coffee. What do you what are you, you're working on uh, two shows I think for AMC yes. right now if I'm not mistaken can you give us a, a an outline of what they're like and uh, and where they are in process yeah two both of them are based on books one is called they can't kill us all it's about the beginning of the Black Lives Matter movement and it's a fictionalized version of that and so the main character is a young woman uh, and uh, a police incident happens and she's sort of trying to figure out how to uh, solve that uh, issue. And and the other project that I'm working on is also based on a book series called Wool. Um, these books by Hugh Howey, which were great big uh, bestsellers in the sci-fi dystopian future space. And it's really about these... Uh, people who the outside of the world has gone toxic and it's terrible and they now live in this underground silo and bad things like a murder mystery happens and bad things happen and uh, this young woman who comes from the bottom of the silo uh, sort of has this meteoric rise to the top and uh, so it's about a lot of things about first of all oh my god what are we doing to the planet <laughs> and uh, second of all uh, it's really about uh, class and uh, you know different spheres uh, and uh, what do we what will we do to survive and how do people uh, how do politics work in a community like that so it's a lot of fun and it goes back to the thing that we were talking about about Twilight Zone and how you disguise the the issues in a genre a big, space big fan of Twilight Zone hey as Early. we are yeah you know see I, I, I love that and as Tim will tell you I do not look at Mad Max and dystopian stuff as, as entertainment they're yeah. training videos yes <laughs> they really are they're in training some ways. videos because yeah, it's going to happen people. it's yeah. going to happen so I watch The Road Warrior I take notes, <laughs> I just, and I get ready. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Oh, it's so funny, it's so funny. So <laughs> let, let, me, let me ask you something about, um, you know, to demystify some of what you do, because everybody who, who listens to our podcast, they've, they've heard audio commentaries, they read books, they know what a producer does, they know what a director does, they know what a screenwriter does, but the, the term showrunner mm -hmm. and the term writer's room, it's yes. all still mis mysterious to people. Um, can you talk a little bit up to sort of demystify that? What does a showrunner do, and what happens in that in that writer's room that is <laughs> that, that people just always wonder about? Well, the showrunner is sort of like the general, and so the they're the person who's in charge of everything. So usually they will write the pilot, they will create the worlds of the show, whether it's an original idea or based on a piece of IP, and uh, then they answer all the questions. So they hire the director, they hire the production designer who comes up with the look of the show. And uh, then they hire a writer's room. And so everyone is coming to the table with a certain understanding, a, a cursory understanding of what the show is. And then as you all sit around, so in the writer's rooms I've been in, you either, you have between like seven to 12 writers. And uh, you all sit down and really dig into the material and start sort of start to take it apart. 
and come up with new ideas and and uh, fresh perspectives, uh, characters that you really like, that you want to see more of, uh, storylines that you think would be interesting. And so every day of the week, you guys talk about that stuff. And then you put it on a big whiteboard um, where you break it down into episodes. So for the AMC shows that I've worked on, we usually have about 10 episodes. So you break that down uh, into uh, one through 10. And then the showrunner assigns, you break that down all together. And then the showrunner assigns one writer per episode to write the episode. Um, so yeah, that's, that's in a nutshell what the showrunner does. And how the writer's room works is you're just constantly um, pitching thoughts and ideas and uh, hopefully some of them fly <laughs> because people can come up with some wild and crazy stuff. And uh, you know, you work together as a team. I always say that being in the writer's room is my favorite team sport. And if you're a really great showrunner, you know how to cast that room. And so just to use a basketball analogy, cause I'm a basketball fan, uh, you know, you have uh, your center, you have your point guard, you have your, uh, you know, your forward, you have your wing. So uh, each person usually kind of has a specialty that they're good at. Some people are better at structure. You know, some people are uh, character people. And so a showrunner will try to build the room based upon balancing those needs. Uh, really quickly, Laker fan? Clippers, baby. Oh. Clippers. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a Clippers fan. Right. Going Clippers, back baby. to when they were in, yeah. I go back to when uh, they were in San Diego. Yeah. That's how that's how far I go back. Look, that's from, a Lakers fan. Look, I'm from LA yeah. and I like they're the big brother. I we're get the you. little brother. And you. so and I I did, will say I've watched way more Laker games now that LeBron is here. Yeah. <laughs> so many more. So Tyson yeah. Tyson Chandler's coming to LA. I that's know. Right, I heard, I right. read that. I said yeah. that's a great get. That's a good yeah, bet. The Clippers so bringing things like trading Blake Griffin. Don't so, bring that up. That oh hurt my, my soul. That did mine too. So so in the writers room when you're assigned I, I have to assume that that as the scripts start coming in Yes. Some writers are stronger with certain characters than others. Yeah. Sometimes the dialogue doesn't quite match the sure. character. There's some massaging and some stitching mm -hmm. that has to go in. And that's so, done by the showrunner. Right. So a lot, a lot of work, a little bit of work, uh, not such fun work. How would you characterize <laughs> that? I mean, it depends on, uh, like, also part of the writer's room is there's different levels of experience. Yeah. So when you first start out, you're a staff writer, and so that's like the low man on the totem mm -hmm. pole. Um, so you're not expected as a staff writer to know what an executive producer would know or how to fix a story the way that the showrunner will. Right. And so there's a little bit of leeway in that where your job as the staff writer is to I always say, sorry, another sports analogy, to get it to the 20-yard line. At right. least you try. You try yeah. to get, get it to the 20. And then the showrunner will pick it up and get it into the end zone. And so you're going to do as much writing and rewriting as you possibly can to capture the voice because that's the odd thing about being in the writer's room. You're trying to capture the voice of someone who's not you. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, it, it takes some tries. But if you're in other writer's rooms and as you learn, you get better and better at it. So, so the, and the point that I wanted to get to, which is what I wanted our listeners to make sure they understand, is that if, even if you're watching, let's say, you know, uh, let's, let's say a, a show like Into the Badlands mm -hmm. or, or Daredevil or whatever it might be, and you're seeing different writers' names in all the episodes, yeah. that doesn't mean that the show writer has not been, the show writer's writing their ass off. Right. Yeah, still, yes. and, and just not getting credit for it. Yes, yeah. and that's part of what you know going in, is yeah. that um, you're, as showrunner, going to rewrite a certain amount of scripts for, that other people have written. 
Um, but the person whose name's on, name is on the script yeah. is usually the assigned writer. Yeah. Yeah. No, no matter how much it actually changes, perhaps. Yeah. Right. How much uh, are you engaged in the actual production of a given episode of a show uh, with the director, uh, DPs, and that L- kind of lo- stuff? And locking shows. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Down, down, in, down in the pit there. Yeah. I, it really depends on who the showrunner is. And I've had the good fortune of working for great showrunners who have allowed me to be a part of the production. And so um, if you're working on a show where the showrunner allows you to go, you our show shoots in Ireland for Into the Badlands. So I got to go to Ireland and work with the director, work with the actors, the production designer, the costumes. So you interact as the producer of the episode and the writer with all those different departments. And your job when you step onto the set is to really uh, hold tight to the vision of the showrunner that you've all been talking about in the writer's room. And so the directors that come on, they're usually the guest. So they, the DP is usually the same, but the directors are different per episode. And so they may be thinking they wanna shoot something a certain way or add a certain character in that may or may not take you away from the vision of what the showrunner wants. And so your job is to really help build with the connective tissue. Really interesting. Yeah. By, the, by the way, I just want you both to see, there's a picture of Al Pacino right next to Michael Mann. <laughs> True. Al Pacino great. and Michael Mann <laughs> blocking the door. I could not get out. I, I would have it. had to push them aside. Oh, so. gosh, oh I've seen... Photographic I've, evidence. I, like I, I have seen heat. I'm not going to mess with either of those guys. <laughs> so... Um, so what's your, what is, what is the best and the worst part of the job? Uh, the best part is the writing and the worst part is the writing. (laughs) 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 I mean, it is the, the joy of my life and the bane of my existence. You know, there are just times where there's always a deadline. So you constantly have, you know, something that you're racing to finish and uh, sometimes that requires you to be up really late at night trying to figure out how the hell you're going to crack this scene. And then the joy of all that is seeing it made. I mean, that's the beauty of television that I can say that's different from film, which is you write an episode and in maybe six months, it's going to air. Your name is going to be on TVs yeah. across the country. So it's an amazing feeling. I still, I mean, I've only been doing this for about six years, but... Uh, I still get excited when I see that. Fantastic. Uh, the yeah. world has changed that much. We, yeah, the film, uh, LaToya, of course, uh, worked on a, a, a short film. Yes. And, uh, on a feature film. Now, there, though, the voice is singular, right? Yes. Uh, uh, talk a little bit about making that transition. Um, well, I've always liked film. I, I love film, and I've always wanted to be a filmmaker. And, and when I got my first job in television, I made sure that when I signed with a, a an agent and a, and a manager, I said, I want to make sure that I'm able to work in both. How can I like balance that out and be able to do that? And so uh, I think, you know, when I take a break from working in TV writers rooms, I would always write a new feature film um, during the six month break. And that smart. was, bec- yeah, and that, and that oh, that's was smart. That's and, smart. And that would be because, like, it's great to work on someone else's show and their vision, but sometimes I just want to kill some people, right? <laughs> you write a drama where, you know, some shoot them up or uh, some piece uh, where there's a suspense thriller and there's a high body count. It's, it's good. It's cathartic. And so, uh, and it's a good practice because uh, I'm a big believer in the 10,000 hour rule. You know, the more you write, the better you get. Yeah. And so I just tried to exercise those muscles. Outstanding. Uh, uh, thank you so much, Latoya Morgan. 
Thank uh, you for having runner, me. Writer into the Badlands, turn shameless. Yes. Now, whoa, um, so many things. Okay. Team Maryland. When, 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 when will the the new shows, new AMC shows, be appearing uh, on? Uh, how, how deep are you into those? Um, I'm still in the development process, so hopefully we'll hear about that early next year. Okay. Okay, man. It takes a while. Takes yeah, it's outstanding. Well. Thank you Thank so much. Thank you for having me, guys. I feel as if they're polishing the sun for me. I 